0: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Opposing Points podcast. My guest today is Thomas Wolfe. He's a recovery and homelessness advocate and also a drug policy reform advocate. Tom, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. So I was reading a, a little bit about uh, you know quotes um, that you gave in, in the book San Francisco, uh, San Francisco uh, by Michael Schellenberger. I did a little bit more research um, on you as well once I saw you there. Um, and I really wanted to have this uh, conversation with you. Um, so to start off, can you give a little bit of a background of your story and the timeline that went with it? I think your story is one that resonates with a lot of people. Um, yeah, so, you
1: know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just kind of like your regular middle class guy. I'm a family guy. I'm married. I have two kids. Uh, and, you know, my story happened in a very short period of time in the span of about five years. Uh, in early 2015, I went in for surgery on my foot, and uh, after the surgery was successful, they sent me home with a month's supply of 10 milligram oxycodone to manage the pain. I had my foot in a boot, in a boot. I was on crutches, and uh, and it was in a lot of pain because they had to break my foot and reset it and insert a couple of titanium screws in my foot. So it was it was pretty invasive surgery, and uh, they gave me this 30-day day supply of oxycodone for the pain. And, uh, I started taking, you know, the 10 milligram pills and they worked really, really well, maybe a little too well, uh, after I took that first 10 milligram pill, you know, I felt a little loopy like you do when you take Vicodin or Percocet, maybe after you've had your wisdom teeth out or something like that. So I was like, man, this feels kind of good, but I was in a lot of pain still in my foot. So I took two pills one day instead of just one as directed and I got higher and I really liked the way that made me feel. Uh, so I, one day I took three pills, 30 milligrams all at once. And that was kind of like the, the point where I kind of jumped the shark from just kind of feeling a little loopy and not having any pain to complete and total euphoria where life was good. I didn't have any problems, any marital problems I had went away, any financial problems I had went away for about three to four hours. And I really, really liked that feeling. So I kept taking three at a time to try to maintain that kind of feeling of euphoria. Uh, And so, you know, with that 30-day supply, instead of it lasting me a, a month, it lasted me about 10 days, and I started to run out. And so as I noticed, after about day seven, I was running low, I started to cut down. Started taking two at a time or one at a time, and I started not feeling so good because that one or two pills wasn't giving me the same high and euphoric feeling that the three pills were. And, uh, and then I started feeling kind of chills. I started obsessing over the pills all the time. I was thinking about them all the time. I started thinking about how can I get more right now? Um, and I started to feel what, what you refer to as dope sick uh, or going into withdrawal from the drug itself. So I had chills. I had some stomach issues. Uh, I was restless. I uh, had some anxiety. And again, the, the obsession of over getting more pills itself. So I tried to get a refill and, you know, they laughed at me at the pharmacy because it was less than 30 days. So that wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at that point, instead of just kind of sucking it up and trying to fight through those withdrawals, I started uh, going online to find out where I could purchase these pills online uh, in San Francisco. And, I, and I'd heard of a place called Pill Hill, which is uh, a corner down in the Tenderloin in San Francisco in the Tenderloin neighborhood called uh, Golden Gate and Leavenworth Streets. And so I actually Googled Pill Hill and it brought me to YouTube where I found a couple of videos that were referring to this is the hot spot to go and buy pain pills on the street in San Francisco. So one day, you know, I told my wife a lie and said I had a doctor's appointment and hopped into the car with my boot on my foot and I drove down to Golden Gate and Leavenworth, got out, walked around. And sure enough, I found five or six different guys selling a variety of different opioids on the street, uh, anything from 30 milligram oxycodones all the way up to 80 milligram oxycodone tablets for about $30 a pill. And I started purchasing them on the street. And that's kind of how my addiction started to accelerate. Uh, And then over the next two years, so the rest of 2015 and 2016, my addiction accelerated or increased to the point where I was taking about 560 milligrams of oxycodone a day. So I went from a 10 milligram prescription to 560 milligrams of oxycodone in a two-year period. So if you took 560 milligrams right now, David, you would die. You would just die of overdose, right? But, you know, addiction is a progressive disease. And also you build up tolerance to the pills itself that you're taking to the medication. So I had to take more and more and more. And that meant that I was taking 80 milligram tablets, seven of them a day at $30 a pill. That's $210 a day times seven days a week. So you can imagine uh, how expensive that got very, very
0: quickly. So that, that first time that you, that you went, um, was, there, was there kind of like, you know, because you're saying you had to, to tell a lie to your, to your wife. I'm, I'm guessing that didn't feel too good. Um, and then, you know, you go and meet these people. There's got to be, I would assume, a little bit of an element of like terrified because like it's not something you had done before. Um, so what was it like dealing with that? And when did that kind of fear dissipate?
1: so that that's a great question uh so yeah i was absolutely terrified the first time i went down there uh so i you know i want to just preface this by saying you know i've i've never been in trouble with the law until Mm -hmm. i was 48 years old the Mm -hmm. worst thing that ever happened to me was a speeding ticket in my whole life Mm -hmm. so when i talk about just a regular guy i mean it i was just a regular guy going through life right and now i find myself going down to one of the toughest neighborhoods in san francisco uh just going off on the street on kind of like blind faith out of desperation to find these drugs so i was absolutely terrified the the irony is that the guys there were like as long as you got the money we'll do business with you mm-hmm. so for them it's all about making money you know and uh once i found one guy that that i could be consistent with i just started going to that same same individual to buy pills on a regular on a regular basis and he had you know, two prescriptions himself that were getting prescribed to him from his doctor. He was actually a veteran, so this it's really sad. He was a he was a vet who had two scripts from the VA, one for 30 milligram morphine and one for 80 milligram oxycodone. Uh, and he would keep half the morphine for him, and he would sell all the rest on the street. And I probably made him hundred thousand dollars, and I'm not even exaggerating. I mean, literally, it like I was saying, two hundred ten dollars a day, times seven days a week. Um, yeah, I went bankrupt literally bankrupt purchasing those pills on the street. And after a while, the fear goes away because one, you need those drugs. And two, you start to build a relationship with that, with that dealer. And so there became kind of a certain uneasy trust there. And as long as he was there, he would do business with me. And I knew I was getting the, the product that I
0: needed. So pretty soon it just became regular because once you go down there enough times, you start getting used to it. Right. And, and how many, Like how long was it before you had your kind of first run in with law enforcement? Well, so,
1: you know, things kind of went south when, um, you know, during that period of time, 2015, 2016, 2017, I actually quit my job because I was going into work and I was using. Um, And before that happened, we started having some big time financial problems, obviously, because I I stopped paying the mortgage. Uh, which was the big thing. And I was hiding that from my wife, which also didn't feel very good at all. Uh, And I was using that money that was supposed to go to pay the mortgage payment to buy drugs. And uh, the levy kind of broke one day, uh, because I I was usually intercepting the mail, so that my wife wouldn't see anything that was coming, like, you know, collection notices, things like that, and intercepting phone calls too. till one day, my wife intercepted the mail instead of me. And there was a foreclosure notice in the mail from our bank, that we were going to lose our house because I hadn't paid the mortgage in six months. And that's when the levy broke. And that's when the wheels kind of came off the wagon and my wife started realizing that we had a big problem. And I think she knew that there was a problem before that, but, you know, denial is a very powerful thing. Uh, And, you know, for her, it was like, here's this guy that's never had a problem. I've been with him for 20 years. What the hell is going on? Uh, All of a sudden our world is upside down. So that was really difficult for her and for my kids. Uh, And that's something I've had to own in my recovery, too, uh, from from the addiction. Uh, And at that point, you know, I kind of got cut off from the money. She kind of took charge of what little money we had left. So I made the fateful decision to switch over to heroin. And that's when you start I started having problems with law enforcement, because in San Francisco, all you have to do is walk down a block from Golden Gate and Leavenworth to Golden Gate and Hyde. And you can buy black tar heroin right there on the street for 10 bucks, which is a lot cheaper than the pills. So that's uh, when I switched over to heroin and started using heroin. And then, you know, that eventually spiraled me into homelessness uh, because I was stealing money from my wife. And one night I took the car at two o'clock in the morning to go down and score dope. This was in, um, in late 2017. Uh, actually, it was early 2018, like January of 2018. And uh, I didn't come home for 11 days. I went on an 11-day bender. And I was found 11 days later by the police. They came knocking on the window of my minivan and said, hey, are you Thomas Wolfe? And I said, yeah. And they said, you know, your wife's been looking for you. You She filed a missing persons report. You need to go home. And the thing is, is when they found me, there was foil and straws and needles all over the car and I was filthy and dirty. So they knew that I was sitting there using drugs, but they didn't arrest me. They told me to go home. And so I did. I went home and my wife was waiting for me with a packed bag saying you either need to go to rehab, and I found a treatment for you, or you need to get out. And at that very moment, I was dope sick. Mm-hmm. And so I made hit that point, I was like, well, you know, heroin, me getting rid of this dope sickness is more important than anything else. So I said, forget it, I'm out of here. And I left and I spent the next six months homeless on the streets of San Francisco. And that's when I started to get in trouble with the law.
0: How long did it take you to kind of almost totally lose yourself or lose control, like, because it sounds like you, you, you were able to hold a job for a little bit. Um, and then eventually, it was just like, it really became the focus. Well, yeah, you know, you hear that term functioning addict, you right Hear that or
1: functioning alcoholic, there's people that are alcoholics that function at a very high level and people that are addicts that function at a very, very high level uh, out there, including, you know, sons of political officials and things like that, right? Um, the wheels came off the wagon for me when I transitioned over to heroin, because once I did that, then I started doing stuff like, um, I was bringing needles already pre-mixed with heroin into my job Mm -hmm. and I would go to the bathroom on my lunch break and I would shoot up in the bathroom stall. And then I would literally nod out on the toilet and then wake up and then go back to my desk and nod out some more. And pretty soon they caught on to that. So uh, I was getting in trouble at my job. So I just made a decision one day to just stop going to work. And I quit. I quit my $80,000 a year job that I had with the city, uh, you know, and uh, chose heroin, chose my addiction over that. And it's a choice that I didn't have a choice in. Let's put it that way. You you know, it's a disease uh, of the mind that hijacks your basic survival instincts. Uh, And I'm not justifying my actions. I have to own all of those in recovery. But I'm just telling you that that's, that's
0: how it went down were there any other, like, did it, does it come as, as a surprise to you that you got addicted? Like, were there any, you know, some people like, oh, I have to like keep, you know, eating chocolate once a day. Like, were there any like warning signs that, you know, that you could have a, a personality that would lend itself to this? Yeah, that's another great question. So, you know, I've, I've been asked that before. And
1: so I believe that addiction is hereditary, like it runs in your genes, you know, and, uh, I come from a family of alcoholics. You know, I remember mixing the bourbon and soda for my grandfather when I was 10 years old and giving it to him because at 1030 in the morning, he was already having a drink. Mm -hmm. Right. And he was an old World War II veteran guy, you know, and I just thought that that was normal and cool because if my grandfather was doing it, then it must be okay, Right. I was 10. What did I know? Um, So it's just, you know, over the years, I think I, you know, I wasn't like a, a heavy drinker, but I was definitely a weekend warrior drinker. I was that guy that would go to a party and drink a little too much. And my wife would have to drive home or I'd be praying to the porcelain goddess at the end of the night, Mm -hmm. or I'm the kind of guy that would go to Vegas and lose all his money and have to come back to my wife groveling that I blew, you know, way more than I was supposed to. So I think the tendencies were there. It just didn't manifest until I started using
0: opioids. Mm -hmm. That's, that's interesting. There's also, um, you mentioned your, your grandfather was a World War II veteran. So there's also kind of some theories that, you know, I'm sure like trauma can, can literally change your genes. So it's like what, what he experienced and like maybe learned a depend, like a dependency on alcohol from war, like could have changed like his makeup and that can, can be passed on. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's possible. I mean, my dad was an army brat, so he mm-hmm. moved around a lot because my, my grandfather was a career career in the service. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, that may have had an effect. Absolutely.
0: Right, right. Um, and so, we're seeing kind of your story happening across across the population, especially young people um, these these days. Um, what are some of the the things that you think about in regards to reform? Um, we, we see some 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 like open air drug dens in, in in San Francisco. They're trying to do the same thing in New York City. Um, what are the different approaches to to reform and, and what do you think works best?
1: Well, so this is, this is where it gets murky because you have um, there's a big push in this country to follow kind of what they're doing in Canada, which they're moving towards not just full decriminalization, but they're moving towards safe supply. And eventually what their goal is, I think is drug legalization mm-hmm. of, of these hard drugs. And, The only thing I'll say about that is that, you know, look, alcohol is legal and regulated, yet more people die from that legally regulated drug than any other drug on the planet. So it's not about whether it's legal or not. And I think that's where people miss the point. It's about the danger of the actual drug itself. And while fentanyl, if used in a controlled setting like in a hospital, isn't necessarily dangerous how can you depend how can you assume that being able to go into a dispensary like you can for marijuana and purchase fentanyl or heroin that that person is going to use that safely and let's face it uh, marijuana it doesn't have the same addictive properties as as fentanyl or heroin does so we're talking about a completely different animal that requires a completely different approach to what we what we've been doing but to kind of answer your question, the answer lies somewhere in the middle on this. You know, you hear the term harm reduction now, and that's kind of become the federal model uh, in their approach to the overdose crisis. And I agree that harm reduction is going to play a role. Uh, but the, uh, one of the initial principles of harm reduction was to, event, was to keep somebody alive long enough in the hopes that they would find the miracle of recovery and then end up abstinent from, from this particular drug that they're addicted to. That has kind of been twisted or it has morphed into just managing someone's addiction for as long as they choose to actually be addicted and that's two very very different things because now you're talking about creating neo-feudalism where you're going to have 20 million people and that's how many people are struggling with addiction in this country it's 20 million uh, people that are going to become dependent upon a drug that you want then the government to be involved in how that drug is doled out to that individual and that's a pretty pretty uh one that's a big number 20 million and two that's a pretty serious uh undertaking that you you know asking the government to basically play drug dealer for someone so i'm not a party to that either so the answer is going to lie somewhere in the middle
0: okay i um i read the book by uh, marty mccary um called the price we pay and one of the things he talks about is um is opioids and how easily they're handed out or maybe um you know, there's like standard, like you mentioned, you got 30 day supply, um, for, for surgery. So he talks about like the amount, the dosage and how we kind of just, here's a month, like we hand it out like, um, like candy, or there's some surgeries where you may not even need, um, such a strong prescription. And maybe you might be able to get by on, on like Tylenol or Advil. Um, do you think that they're handed out too easily and too uniformly, um, just as a as a quick kind of like, here you go, here's a pain med, because you had a minor surgery. So I think they were.
1: I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I mean, clearly, the studies have shown and the government has said, said as much itself that they're reducing the amount of opioid prescriptions. Now, it's really hard to get an, a prescription for oxycodone from your doctor. Now, mm-hmm. the problem is, is that the whole thing with the Sacklers and the overdose and, and the, the oxycodone overprescribing set the table for where we're at today. And what what I mean by setting the table is that you created an entire generation of people that are now addicted to Oxycontin or Oxycodone. Uh, Maybe unknowingly, maybe knowingly. I think a lot of it was knowingly, uh, but the, the, the money was too good to say no. I really believe that that is the case because there's so many doctors out there and I'm 51. So I remember going to my doctor and saying, hey, my back hurts and they're writing me a prescription for Tramadol in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like it was no big deal. And that's an opioid too. And it was a prescription with refills. So clearly they were just, you know, doling this stuff out. You know, you heard about that doctor that was meeting his patients at Starbucks and writing scripts at Starbucks for a little extra cash into the table. So, you know, the money was too good to to turn it down and it set the table for the crisis that we have today. And so now the government's a little bit behind on this and that they're cracking down on over-prescribing of opioids but we've already kind of dealt with that crisis in a lot of ways. And now the overdoses have moved on to illicit drugs because all those people got addicted to those drugs 20 years ago. They're still addicted now and they've had to move on to heroin and fentanyl and all those things. And so now we have all those people are are dying because the fentanyl itself is 10 to 50 times stronger than the stuff that they were getting prescribed 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. Um, You mentioned Sackler. I, I believe he's like the focus of the show. Um, dope sick. Right. Um, Could you provide a little bit of a brief background of what exactly his influence was um, in terms of history and the fentanyl or, or drugs? Well, sure. So, you know, Purdue Pharma was
1: one of the main, not the only, but one of the main manufacturers of Oxycontin back in the 80s and the 90s. And when they lobbied the federal government, the FDA, they lobbied them, with a lot of lobbying, a lot of money, a lot of campaign financing uh, to basically declare that OxyContin was not necessarily an addictive drug and that it was safe to use long term for, uh, for pain management. And, you know, that's just a lie. Right. It's mm-hmm. a flat out lie. And that's why they're in court today. And that's why yesterday the judge actually overturned the settlement with Sackler. And said, "No, you know they're not. They don't get to escape criminal prosecution, as they shouldn't. They should all be. Anyone involved with that down the line should be facing some type of justice for the for for what they have done. They created a crisis, an overdose, and an addiction crisis that did not exist prior to that, right? Of millions and millions of people, and they caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people." Uh, while serving a very small percentage of people that need actually needed the drugs for pain management that have chronic pain. So, you know, the whole thing about the addiction crisis and the homelessness crisis too, is that this crisis is a crisis about trade-offs, right? That's how everyone needs to start looking at this. It's a crisis about trade-offs. And so was that trade-off worth it to addict 20 million people to a drug to save, Uh, a few hundred thousand people that had chronic pain symptoms. No, absolutely not. So they set the table for what we're facing now. And I I don't think that the settlement that was given to them a couple of years ago was anything close to what it should be. I think that their finances should be completely seized. Mm -hmm. I think all that money needs to be redistributed to addiction treatment services uh, throughout the country, not just like a class action settlement where you get a check for nine bucks um i think it needs to actually be poured into you know some type of model where you have almost like a socialized medicine model where where you have like a statewide addiction treatment system in each and every state to help people cope with this terrible crisis that they brought on 20 years ago that has now morphed into something
0: far far worse so 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 with with the current like kind of way of doing things what do you what do you believe is really the best way to like wean people off drugs so so you're out there advocating, um, especially, you know, with the homeless, there's a, there's a big drug addiction problem. Um, when, when you're out there, wh- what, how do you do it? Well, so
1: it's going to take a combination of things, right? Um, so look, the drugs are 50 to hundred times stronger than they were just three years ago on the streets. Okay. Illicit fentanyl really has changed the game. And I don't know anybody that's kicked fentanyl cold Turkey. You know, you've heard that term. Oh, I had to white knuckle it. You know, you might be able to do that with heroin, but you can't do that with fentanyl. It's too strong. So you need help. You need what they call medically assisted treatment. Uh, and the, the the there's two drugs that are used right now for opioid withdrawal. One of them is methadone, which I'm not a huge fan of, but it's there. Uh, and the other one is Suboxone or buprenorphine, and that's an opioid inhibitor. And the reason I like that drug is that when I got arrested after my sixth time being arrested out there on the streets. And I went to jail. I met with a triage nurse in jail and she asked me, do you use drugs? And I said, yes. And they said, well, what and how much? And I told them heroin about a gram a day and a little bit of fentanyl. And they said, okay. So the next day when I was in full withdrawal in my jail cell, a nurse came by and said, Hey, pill call Wolf, here you go. And they handed me some of this buprenorphine and they said, let it melt under your tongue. And within two minutes, I felt normal. The actual physical withdrawals went away. The sweats, the shakes, all of that, just it just literally disappeared within minutes. And I was just sitting up and I felt fine. So um, I took that for five days on a taper in jail to kick my heroin uh, withdrawal. And uh, and that was it. And ever since then, I've been abstinent from all drugs and alcohol in recovery. Um, But that works, that drug works. And that's a drug that we need to make more widely available. And that's a harm reduction thing. And so that's where I'm in line with harm reductionists. We need that medically assisted treatment because it's about improving the quality of that individual's life. Mm -hmm. Is is suboxone and methadone highly addictive? Yes, it is. But does it affect you in the same manner that fentanyl and heroin do? No, they do not. So you're able to function and it gets back to that whole functioning addict or functioning alcoholic thing. You're able to function. You can go work and get a job under those conditions where you can't if you're shooting heroin all day long or you're smoking fentanyl all day long. So that's one thing that I support. And then the other thing is that, you know, we got to do something about the black market, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it. The cartels are, are so big and powerful in Mexico now that the Mexican government doesn't want anything to do with them mm-hmm. anymore. They literally cut a deal with the cartels, with the Sinaloa cartel and others to just say, you guys go ahead and do your thing. We're going we're gonna to hang back and be cool because it would be a war. It would literally be a war. That's how, that's how bad it is, right? And so what did the cartels do? They figured out how to synthesize drugs, make synthetic drugs instead of growing opium poppies everywhere and harvesting them and making heroin. They actually found some guys in China, some, some chemical companies, bought the precursors from China, smuggled them into Mexico, and then turned them into illicit fentanyl in these clandestine labs that are usually buried deep within cities that are hard to find. and then they smuggle them out uh, by the hundreds and hundreds of kilos. And
0: ship them up to the United States for distribution. Wow, um, there's like yep. a bunch of like Walter Whites, basically. Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> like, that's uh, So one of the things you also advocate is is um, is a combination of of public health and law enforcement. Um, I think that's a discussion that's kind of ongoing uh, in, in a lot of cities, especially with regards to police reform. How do you believe that that um, benefits um, people that are suffering from you know, addiction or homelessness? Well, look, so I think that you just hit the nail on the head. The answer here is
1: cooperation between public health and law enforcement. So, what, you know, right now in this country, you hear that term end the war on drugs, end the drug war, you hear the Drug Policy Alliance, that's their whole mantra, mm-hmm. right? And it's true that a lot of people have PTSD from the war on drugs, because we were too draconian, we were too harsh in our sentencing with mandatory minimums and things like that. Those were probably pretty bad decisions that that we made at the time uh, is is kind of like a knee jerk reaction to the to the crack crisis that was out there affecting primarily the black community. Right? Right. Um, So we don't want to make that same mistake again. But that doesn't mean that we can't, reform and actually have sensible law enforcement to go along with our public health approach because the bottom line is that there is a subset of people out there especially people that are struggling with homelessness that require some type of intervention in regards to their addiction they just do i required intervention on the street i had to get arrested six times but after that six time yeah man they locked me up for three months which was enough time for me to get clean And then make that decision to go to rehab and get treatment and try to get better and turn my life around. There's a lot of people on the street right now that require that type of approach. Because if you just keep coming with carrots and carrots and carrots for people and absolutely no sticks, then people are just going to continue to make that decision to use, not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to, because the addiction is so strong. So we need to come at them with this public health approach of using, you know, medically assisted treatment, but we also have to look at mandated treatment and drug courts as a vehicle, especially for those that are hardest to help that are already on the street to get off the street and get into treatment. Because one of the things I I remind people of is that, so I was homeless. I spent six months on the street. I lived on a doorway, in a doorway on Golden Gate Avenue in San Francisco for six months on a piece of cardboard. I didn't even have a tent, okay? Okay. Going to drug treatment, six-month inpatient drug treatment, ended my homelessness. And that's something that people don't talk about. So when you're in an inpatient program, you're housed, you're clothed, you're fed, you're given counseling. Those are all things that equate to you not being homeless. I got help with finding a job. All these different things that were that were provided to me. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things that we have to think about is that drug treatment ends people's homelessness Uh, especially inpatient drug treatment, outpatient treatment, not necessarily, but inpatient treatment for those that are hardest to help. That is really the way out.
0: Yeah. I think, um, you know, just, just based on where I'm from, there were, um, there were some, you know, I guess you could say well-off, well-off people that, you know, when they were 20 in their twenties, trust fund kids, they, or even see, you see it with celebrities. They, they, they go to rehab, they get out and they relapse pretty quickly. It, is is there is it is it just a numbers game when it comes to, to to this, or is there a certain style of rehab that works better than others in your opinion?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. The answer to that is I don't have like a really great answer for you, except that everybody's journey and recovery is different, mm-hmm. right? So for me, it was an abstinence-based program. That's what I needed right? I needed to just give it all up, including the alcohol, even though I didn't necessarily consider myself an alcoholic. But I knew that that could open the door to other things because alcohol, the nature of alcohol itself clouds your judgment, right? Mm -hmm. So because it is also a drug. Uh, But for other people, they need long term use of medication to help them function. Um, Some people need 12 step type of help, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the tools that I use to help me stay in recovery. I go to a lot of meetings and a lot of basements of churches, man, and sit around a lot of other people that are in the same boat that I am. And that's a great source of support, right? Right. So it really just kind of depends on what's out there and what's available. And then also what you can afford. And I think that's where we run into trouble. So a lot of addiction treatment programs are for profit and a lot of them require insurance. And if you don't have insurance, then you need, you know, in California, we call it Medi-Cal. Right. In Texas, they call it Medi-Tex, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where that'll pay for up to 90 days of treatment in California. Um, <clears throat> but treatment can be really, really expensive. So we need to look at, you know, not just not just private donations and funding for addiction treatment programs, but we need to look at the government actually stepping in. And this is one of those areas where, you know, like I was saying earlier, that, you know, maybe we need socialized a socialized medicine program for addiction and mental health specifically. Because look, you have 165,000 to 200,000 people that are homeless in California right now. And depending on who you talk to, uh, and just based on my experience of being on the street, about 70 to 80% of them are struggling with addiction or untreated mental illness, Mm -hmm. right? And most of them don't have insurance because they don't have a job. right? So we got to figure out a way as a community, as a society to, to make a decision to help them. Because if, you know... If you go to the far, far right and they say, well, just let them die, let them sit out there and suffer, that messes up the rest of the community. Because then you have someone just shooting dope on the street, out in the open while your kids walk by and defecating on the street and leaving their used needles on the street or having them going through a mental crisis, banging their head on the wall on the street. Nobody wants to see that. We want to have that individual in a safe place where he can get the services that he or she needs. So that's one of those
0: trade-offs again, that we should, we should be considering. Wow. Um, it's, I, uh, I know, uh, the mayor of San Francisco, I believe, uh, London breed is her name. Um, kind of, I don't know if, it, if, if she turned her previous positions, but she came out pretty strong, um, on what's going on in San Francisco and it happens to be pretty bad in San Francisco. Um, I've, I lived in New York city for three years. Um, I think I walked by someone, you know, shooting up drugs Mm -hmm. once, but, um, you know, in like the Penn station area, but I I I think since, since COVID the pandemic happened, it's, it's gotten a lot worse as far as people living outdoors and, 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 and crime, but still San Francisco, um, spends more than other cities. I think much more uh, on this problem. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think it's just not being spent? On the right things, um, what wh- what's what's wrong with the model that San Francisco is doing or different versus New York City, for example? So that's a great question. So look, San Francisco has anywhere from
1: 8,000 to 17,000 homeless people in a, in a city with a population of about 800,000, mm-hmm. okay? So that's a pretty high number. But San Francisco also spends about $100,000 a year per homeless individual which is far more than any other city in the nation. So at a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, if we're talking about, well, it's just a housing problem for a hundred grand a year, man, you could house every single one of them like that, like that, but we don't. Right. Because the way that that money is spent and the way that it has to be spent and the way that the government requires that money to be spent, it requires, you know um, all this different reporting and, and, certain harm reduction requirements for treatment and certain other requirements for housing, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes convoluted. So the government's like, well, we don't want to deal with it. So we're going to hire a bunch of nonprofits and contract with them and have them do all the work instead. So now San Francisco has a situation where they have 60 nonprofits uh, working and doing a lot of duplicative work where they're overlapping each other with services, right? Getting paid, $260 260 million dollars a year by the city and county of San Francisco to do this work and having, you know, little or no reporting or oversight requirements as to its overall performance of the work that they're doing. Now, do they do good work? Yeah, they do good work. You know, nonprofits work really hard. They hire people that are coming out of the criminal justice system and give them opportunities where others won't. So there's a lot of good things that nonprofits do do. I was helped by a nonprofit. I got I went to treatment through the Salvation Army. They're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. right? So I got helped by them. So they do good work. The problem is, is when you have 60 nonprofits all trying to do the same job at the same time, and they're not talking to each other, Mm -hmm. then you get a lot of needless spending, a lot of wasted money. And you get very, very limited results, especially because there's no oversight or accountability as to how that money is being spent uh, from the city and then higher up the chain to for the state and then eventually the federal government. So that's the kind of thing that needs to change. We need to talk about outcomes. And then figure out a way to streamline some of those services so that we don't have to spend a hundred thousand dollars per homeless person just to give that individual, their body autonomy and their choice to stay on the street and shoot dope and live in a tent. That's, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. So, so we really need to look at, we need to look carefully at how we're spending that money, who gets that money
0: and how we're going to measure results going forward. Right. Um, And the most, most cities, uh, tend to be uh, at least the heavily populated ones tend to be, uh, you know, blue cities or, or democratic cities. Um, is there any difference between uh, how, how that stuff is handled there versus um, more like a, like, I guess a red city or red state um, in terms of harm, like harm reduction, homelessness. I mean, I think it's mentioned in in San Francisco um, that like Arizona doesn't have the same sort of problem. Um, neither
1: Neither does Miami. They don't right. have the same kind of problem either, and, and and neither does New York to an extent. New York has right to shelter; they have mm-hmm. a right to shelter ordinance. So the whole state of California really needs that at the very least. San Francisco and L.A. need a right to shelter ordinance, and that's something that I'm considering. You know, putting my activism activism towards is having a ballot measure in San Francisco to have uh, to put a right to shelter uh, ordinance on the books here uh, to force the city to invest in a more expansive shelter system while they scale up permanent supportive housing for people so that you don't have people waiting five years on the street for that supposed permanent supportive housing because that's how long it takes to build it or acquire it.
0: Okay. And, and why do you think that um, San Francisco um, suffers from higher levels of unsheltered homelessness as compared to like New York City?
1: <laughs> so there's... Okay, so let me get back to that blue state thing or blue city thing versus red city thing (laughs) Uh, because it's related, right? So I was in Austin a couple of months ago in October Mm -hmm. and they're they're a city that's kind of recently moved to the left, to their progressive left with their mayor and many members of their city council Mm -hmm. but they still have some Republican influence um, in that city. And so it's not entirely one party rule there. There's some accountability coming from both sides for each other's policy requests and desires, right? Mm-hmm. And they seem to have found some kind of balance where they're taking a very compassionate approach towards the homeless, but at the same time, in May of last year, they passed a homeless camping ban to um, to now no longer allow people to just pitch a tent on the on Sixth Street, which is their main street in downtown Austin, and camp like they were doing before. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And they they then have expanded their shelter system as a result, and now ironically, the city of Austin has more shelter beds than San Francisco does. So some of it has to do with this kind of one party rule kind of thing, uh, and then some of it has to do with just this liberal approach we have towards drug use. And this is where that harm reduction thing kind of gets twisted up a little bit, and this is where I kind of lose traction, or where I have a problem with harm reduction advocates, where there's you know again the goal of harm reduction was to eventually move towards you know recovery and abstinence from the drug, not just managing your addiction forever. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've turned into in San Francisco, because the overarching goal of many of the advocates in San Francisco around harm reduction is drug legalization. This body autonomy that, hey, if you want to shoot dope, man, that's your business. Go ahead and go ahead and do that. You know, Um, the problem is, is that when you're out on the street and you're homeless um, and you're violating other people's civil liberties at the same time, Uh, as we're trying to respect yours, how is that really fair? And so we end up with a situation of where we're holding certain subgroups of people to a different standard of the law than what you and I are being held to. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where that victimology that Michael Schellenberger talks about in San Francisco comes from, right? And it is, it's a victim kind of mentality that, well, they're a victim, so we're just going to help them be comfortable, but we want them to stay where they're at until they decide that they've had enough. Well, even if you've decided that you've had enough, man, it's, it's when you're all the way down on the street, man, without intervention, it's damn near impossible to get off the street.
0: Right. And there's a difference, I guess, between legalization, right. Which some States are doing, for example, with, with marijuana and decriminalization. Can you talk about how each of those would kind of, or I think decriminalization, how that would have an impact on, on the goal of reducing the problem? So decriminalization and
1: legalization are two completely different things. Legalization is what's happened to marijuana where you can walk into a pot dispensary in San Francisco and you can just you know, go up to the counter and you can buy some weed or some vape pens that have THC in it and then go about your business, right? Decriminalization means that heroin and fentanyl is still illegal. But if you get caught with a small amount, like less than a 10 day supply, Instead of being arrested and charged with a felony for drug possession, you're given a ticket, like a citation, like a parking ticket for about a hundred bucks, like a fine. And then what should happen is you should be then directed to some type of services, detox or treatment, or to talk to somebody. So, but what that's morphed into in San Francisco, uh, and this may change now with this new movement from our mayor to crack down on the drug dealing and stuff on the street, is that decriminalization just meant that the police aren't even going to bother to arrest you and make a report. So I think last month, I I get the crime stats monthly from San Francisco Police Department. And I think last month, they had one citation for drug possession in all of San Francisco. They arrested a bunch of drug dealers, but they only cited one guy for drug possession. So that's gone beyond decriminalization to where we're just not going to enforce it. So what they do in Portugal is a very different thing than what's happening in San Francisco, and I, Michael talks about that in his book, right. where drugs are decriminalized, but when you're caught with a less than a 10-day supply of heroin, you are given a citation, and you're ordered to report to an administrative court called the Commission for the Dissuasion of Addiction, where then you're sit, you, you go into this room and you're, you're there with a social worker and a cop, and a judge, and you're scolded by them and basically offered treatment literally by the next day. You can be in a treatment bed, right? We have no system like that in San Francisco or really anywhere in the United States. In order to get into drug court, you have to get arrested. You have to go to jail. You have to wait till your court date, get in front of a judge, get referred to drug court, wait for that court date, go in front of that judge, and then hope that that judge will mandate you into inpatient treatment. But what happens in San Francisco is that when you go to drug court here now, because we're so progressive, we're mandating people to assisted outpatient treatment instead of inpatient treatment because forced treatment doesn't work according to the harm reduction folks. Right. Where, and let me explain why this is a problem. If you have 4,000 to 8,000 people that are homeless on the street, struggling with drug addiction, and you go out and you say, okay, we've had enough, we're going to bust you, and we're going to get you some help, and you refer them to drug court, and the drug court says, we're going to put you in assisted outpatient treatment three hours a week for the next six weeks, and then turn them loose and release them back out into homelessness. How, as a homeless person, are you going to even remember or want or care to show up to your assisted outpatient treatment three days a week, or three hours a week, every week? You're not. It's a joke. It's absolutely. I mean, I, I get really passionate about that because I'm like, we, we're literally arresting people, releasing them back into homelessness in this weird cycle over and over and over again, and, and are just cool with them shooting dope out in the middle of the street. Nobody has a problem with that. And the result of that is that this year alone, we've had 593 overdose deaths through November in San Francisco. And there is a direct correlation between that approach and those overdose deaths. And then of course the
0: unabated organized drug dealing that we
1: allow on the streets here.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so they're basically, you know, they're putting these people out that the conditions that they were in before they're back in them, they're just now sober and they have no way of. Right. So they just go and
1: use, right. So they, they go and shoplift some stuff from Walgreens, go and sell it on the black market down at civic center, you know, score 10 bucks and go buy some fentanyl and they're back off to the races
0: again. I've seen some videos of that. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's happening in New York too. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's madness, um, with, with kind of lawlessness. Um, that's actually another topic I wanted to, to get on. I, I know that the, I don't know how to pronounce the gentleman's name, but the DA, this district attorney, Chesa uh, Bodine. Chesa Bodine. Um, yeah. I, I know that some of, some of the things, uh, he stands for is, are a bit controversial. Um, so, Um, does the criminal justice system in San Francisco, um, enable this to get worse or are they just not doing enough or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both.
1: So they're not only enabling it with certain policies, but, um, they're just not doing enough about it either. The problem is, is that we now basically for all intents and purposes, we have two public defenders offices in San Francisco. our, Our current district attorney used to be a public defender. He then comes into office and right off the top, he fired like 20 prosecutors, right? And then a bunch more quit after that. And then he replaced all of them with public defenders, with former public defenders. So now when you go into the superior court, you've got a former public defender as your prosecutor talking to his or her buddy, who's still a public defender from the public defender's office, talking to a judge that used to be a public defender and they're making deals. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens. So that's part of the problem, right there, uh, and that may sound controversial, but that's actually what's happening in San Francisco. You know, which is a big reason why we're about to recall him in June. There's going to be a recall election for our DA, and uh, you know, uh, that I'm part of that movement, and that movement. You know, we got over eighty-three thousand signatures to get on the ballot to recall him, and I think that it's going to happen, and I think it has to happen because look what's happening in our city. We have we have these mass smashing grabs happening. of of retail stores like Macy's, like Louis Vuitton that happened a couple of weeks ago that was all over the news. Neiman Marcus, people running in 30 people deep, stealing a bunch of purses and stuff and running out. You have uh, about 3,000 car break-ins a month in San Francisco, which is more than New York. And we only have, again, 800,000 people in this city, 49 square mile radius, 3,000 break-ins a month of cars being smashed, smashing grabs. You have anywhere from 100 to 150 drug dealers working in shifts 24-7 on the street, selling fentanyl and a variety of other drugs out in the open downtown. So they're not like off to the side in some alleyway somewhere. They're just out in the open on the corner slinging, right? And you have thousands of people struggling with addiction surrounding them in various states of either being high or in withdrawal. And then... And then they need to continue to get money for those drugs because those drugs aren't free. Mm-hmm. So they go out and rob. They steal stuff to do it, right? They loot, not loot. Loot's not the right word. They shoplift from Walgreens, from Macy's, from Ross, all those places. And then they come out and there's a bunch of fences that work in Civic Center in our city. And they sell them down there to these fences to buy them for pennies on the dollar, the items that they've stolen. And then those individuals use that money for drugs. So it's like a combination of all those things. And, you know, our current DA's approach is that drug dealing is a nonviolent crime and that we can't arrest our way out of this problem. But if you're committing crimes to support your addiction, that's no longer a drug addiction thing. That's a larceny thing. (laughs) You're you're now stealing, right? So you need to be held accountable. Otherwise, what's stopping me from taking a U-Haul truck down to Macy's downtown and and stealing $100,000 worth of stuff? What's really stopping me from doing that? Just because I'm not addicted to heroin anymore, I can't do it. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you are addicted to heroin, it's okay. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the issue right there.
0: Well, he he was uh, elected at the time, you know, following um, I think George George Floyd and um, and all that, right? So no, it was before the year before. before. Wow. Yeah, he
1: was before he got elected right before the pandemic. It was a very very close race. Uh, he was running against three other candidates. Two of them were more moderate. One of them was also progressive, and they kind of split the majority of the vote.
0: So oh. he kind
1: of snuck in underneath that and won
0: yeah. uh, in a rank, rank choice voting. Yeah, yeah. He was like someone else because spo- because I mean we we saw we saw like the Minneapolis the movement there, um, and it got you know shot down in Buffalo. She lost to the writing candidate, um, who was happened to be the previous. But like people generally don't aren't voting for these things. So I was like, how did this guy? <laughs> get in well, there.
1: Pe- people aren't generally voting for this thing now because we're seeing right. the results of the defund the police movement now. Yeah. Right? You're seeing cities like Portland that are burning, uh Seattle's in trouble. Uh you know, LA has 74,000 homeless people uh and now their murder rate is exploding. Oakland has had 132 homicides this year. Uh and you know, they were one of the first cities after Minneapolis to defund their police department. They cut 18 million dollars from their budget and now they're they're putting a bunch of that money back to hire more cops. The problem is, is that it takes two years to get a cop on the street from the academy going forward from recruitment through the academy and then trained to get on the street. So you're not going to see any real change for a couple of years, unfortunately.
0: That's sad. I, I spent, I think three months in Portland um, uh, when I was working. Um, uh, I think it was like 2016. It was, it was beautiful. It's like a beautiful place. Um, and it was like, <laughs> the Apple store I used to walk by, I was like, um, you know, smashed. I think, uh, I think Andy Neo, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name either, but <laughs> the, the, uh, the journalist, he, he was chased into a very nice hotel that, um, that I used to eat at sometimes, uh, for, uh, after work events. Um, so it's kind of like, I don't know, it's in a, in three to four years or, or whatever it's been, it just kind of, what? Well, you know, the way I see it, like in Portland specifically, you
1: know, Antifa saw the George Floyd thing as an opportunity that, okay, this is our time for la revolution, you know. Yeah. And <laughs> that's what they went out and did. And so unfortunately, extremism, which was the George Floyd thing, breeds extremism, which is the Antifa thing, breeds extremism, which is kind of like what Andy does, right? To to go off and so now you have all these extreme people on all sides that are doing all these things and It's freaking out the the majority of Americans, which are pretty moderate people, pretty Mm -hmm. reasonable people. We just want peace, you know, just want to go about our business. Right. And not have to worry about going out on the street and, you know, getting your car Molotov cocktailed or getting your window smashed or getting robbed. You know, the old Asian lady walking down the street, getting robbed of her purse by a gang of dudes that come up. Right. You don't you don't want that to happen. So it's really about, you know, um, for me. I try to walk this, this or thread this needle down the middle. Um, I consider myself a moderate, you know, of, uh, of just no more extremists. It's time for just people to kind of come together in the middle and have a blend of, you know, some of the stuff from the left, some of the stuff from the right and just kind of go forward calmly and with a real plan, because right now we really don't have a good plan.
0: Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Just like over the course of the pandemic, just people, it seemed were emboldened to, commit crimes um i think uh an older um asian woman and her son were like pulled down from on the subway in new york city someone was attacked and she ended up dying someone was attacked with like a hatchet randomly at an atm um i i I don't know i don't know if it's like you know they wear masks so it's like no one's gonna know who i am but like i people (laughs) just seem emboldened to commit crimes at such a high rate i And what is
1: hard is that, so look, for me, the way I look at it is that the whole George Floyd thing kind of caused a moral panic in this country that was exacerbated by COVID. I really think it was like a moral panic, almost like a fever came across people, right? Defund everything and tear the system down and burn the system down. And it was just totally inflamed by the far, far left, right? And the January 6th stuff didn't help. Trump didn't help on the right. I mean, so again, it's about extremism, right? Um, And but now, kind of on the, on the back end of that, it's like people are coming, coming out of that fever, they're coming out of that moral panic, and they're stopping and they're looking around and they're realizing two things. One, they don't feel safe. And two, this stuff was already in motion before George Floyd. It's well, been in motion since like 2018. Mm-hmm. It's been in motion. When Larry Krasner got elected in Philadelphia, it's when it kind of started. And then you had Kim Fox in Chicago getting elected. Uh, and you had... George Gascon in San Francisco later moving on to L.A. to be the district attorney there. And then Chase Bodine getting elected district attorney here. Uh, you got the guy, uh, Garza, down in Austin, Texas, getting elected down there. They're all progressive DAs that all receive a huge funding source for, from George Soros and his, and his group, right, that are all talking the same mantra about decriminalization, about, about not just reducing incarceration, but to decarcerate. Right. You, there's a movement that's gotten bigger on the left called the Free Them All Movement, which is jail abolition. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. That, that's become a thing now where it's like mainstream. That's the thing that's crazy about it is that that's mainstream stuff now that people are talking about on mainstream media. And that's insane that they're talking about that because the bottom line is that progressive policy doesn't work without a modicum of public safety, period. It doesn't work. And we're seeing the results of that
0: now. Yeah, I talked a bit about that with um, with Charles Love on the last podcast, um, as, as far as just like they, w- they want to abolish the police. Um, Rashida Talib had an Axios interview. And as I mentioned to Charles, like they're not exactly a, a conservative think tank. And, and the guy is just like, so you want to introduce this act and it will release sexual predators, like sex traffickers. And she's just like, yeah, like. So it, it almost makes me think, and it, it kind of leads me into, into the, the next question is that there are, this is a bit cynical of me. So I always think that there are, are, are things that the Republicans and the Democrats love to run on and not actually fix so that they can run on it again and then blame the other party. Like I look at immigration as one of those things, right? Like it wasn't fixed in four years. Like if they fixed it, they'd have nothing to fix. So the cynic in me looks at this and I say, there are a lot of people making money off of this system. Like, there's there's all these groups that are saying, like, eh, you know, let them do this, let them do this. Uh, let's do s- safe injection sites, whatever it may be. Um, so, do you th- uh, do you think that there's an argument for that? That like maybe it's not to fix the problem. Um, but to make a profit or is this really just a legitimate case of, you know, good intentions, um, you know, can pave the road to hell. Yeah. It's, it's
1: both without, without trying to sound too cynical myself. I mean, you've heard that term of the homeless industrial complex. (laughs) I actually haven't heard that. (laughs) ah, Okay. It's not a term that, that I like to use, but it's out there, uh, where it's like, you know, uh, it, you know, look, these nonprofits exist to serve the homeless. And so as long as there's a clientele to serve, they're going to continue to to get contracts and stay in business, right? Yeah. Um, But so so then you do have to look at the deeper issues of the causes of homelessness. So, you know, addiction, mental illness, yes, poverty. Yes, you could even make the argument for systemic racism. Yes, um, all those things. And so it's smart to invest in, in poor communities and communities of color to try to lift them out of poverty so that they don't, you know, you reduce risk that way. So any any reasonable business would look at like, we want to mitigate our risk. So that would make sense to invest in those communities. The, the where I kind of come in is that I'm already looking around. I'm standing on the street looking around now at 200,000 homeless people in the state of California. So are we just going to say that their lives are worth less than everybody else's? Or are we going to try to do something to actually get them off the street and improve their quality of life? and what's odd to me is that as i work with service providers and i talk to advocates and other people it's uh you know the majority view right now is that we just need to house everybody and the problem goes away but in the meantime we have to respect that person's civil liberties. so if they want to live in a tent on the street we have to let them and i just don't believe that that's one healthy for that individual and it's not healthy for our community or our state or our country to take that approach. Because what happens with that is that you're seeing now an influx of youth falling into homelessness in this country. And most of it is driven by addiction. Now, at least from what I've seen, and people will argue that, that, well, that's not true. It's driven by the high rents and all that stuff. But, you know, there's homeless people coming out of Oregon by the thousands and coming out of rural areas in California by the thousands that are gravitating to San Francisco and LA, where rent is cheap from where they're coming from. They're coming down to San Francisco and L.A. because they, get to, they can get the drugs 24-7. The police don't mess with them. They can get general assistance or general relief money. They can get food stamps uh, and eventually maybe get some type of you know, shelter-in-place hotel housing or mm-hmm. some type of housing for free or for very little money. And they have to do very little, and they can just continue to do their dope the whole time. And I think that we need to ask more of those folks. And I think that it's okay for us to have expectations of other human beings. That's how society thrives, is that we all have expectations and goals as a community and as individuals. And I think that, you know, that's something that I got back to in recovery that I lost in my addiction is I I didn't care. I stopped caring when I was using. I only cared about the drugs. I didn't even care if I died. I didn't want to die. But if I overdosed and died, I was like, I don't care. You know, that type of where you just let it go like that, we're seeing far, far too much of that. And then people that are saying, oh, it's okay, it's okay that you let that go. You can keep letting that go. And here's some stuff so that you don't die. But, you you know, when you're ready, you can come to us and we'll start talking to you about trying to get better. Well, I think there's some people that need a little nudge to get better. And that's why I support mandated treatment. Why I think that we need to do more to get people up off the street and into the shelter system. As a way to get them into housing, because I really do believe that the issue of homelessness uh, and addiction will be our undoing in many of
0: these big cities, unless we take some action now. Absolutely. Um, so, you mentioned that like some of the people were, were voluntarily moving to San Francisco. Um, is there is there are there any cases where people are are choosing to be homeless rather than be in a shelter and why would that be?
1: Well, the, yes. So the answer is flat out is yes to that. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons to that. So one, okay, so, so housing advocates will tell you because the shelter system sucks, right? It's not safe inside a shelter. But look, man, I'm just going to tell you straight up. I've stayed on the street. I've lived on the street and I've lived in a shelter. No matter what anybody says, a shelter is safer and better than living on the street. Because when I was on the street, if nothing else, I was cold all the time. Even when it was warm, I was cold all the time. So the big drawback for shelters for so many people is one, there's rules. Okay. Usually rule number one is no drugs. Rule number two is no weapons. Rule number three, in some cases, is you can only bring a limited amount of belongings. So that, that makes it so that people are like, well, you know, I want to be free. I want to be able to do what I want. And I need my dope. So I'm not going to go to that shelter. And they don't go to the shelter. And that's what happens right um so do we need to make improvements around the shelter system to make it better and more comprehensive absolutely i think a lot of the stuff they're doing in san diego right now with their bridge shelters i think you could use that as a model where it's like every single day they have service providers on site offering help for housing and treatment and stuff and i think that that doesn't happen enough in too many shelters here on the West Coast. I'm not sure how it is in New York, but I haven't heard some of the greatest things because it's a big kind of complex issue out there too because you're sheltering 90,000 people in New York. Right. Uh, so that, that's a big, big undertaking that probably needs more oversight. But that doesn't mean you should throw out the baby with the bathwater. That just means that you can reform the shelter system and make it better and more effective. Because again, I promise you that the amount of time that it's taking to find someone permanent supportive housing ranges anywhere from one to five years. And so I I just promise you that if you leave them on the street to languish for one to five years while they wait for housing, half of those people are going to be dead before that housing is realized because of the drugs that are out there on the street right now, like fentanyl, that are so much more lethal than the drugs that were out there just a few years ago.
0: Yeah, Um, one of the the last things that I was just thinking about throughout this this whole conversation, starting from the beginning, um, was so the first time you go right um, to purchase, you, you make that lie. There's, there's cognitive, uh, I guess, dissonance there between, you know, you want to tell the truth, right. But you don't. And so that even adds to it. And I think uh, this is just me, like, you know, whatever, based on some books um, and psychology books that I'm interested in, but do you think the problem has gotten any worse with just people not living their lives, honestly. So whether it's, you know, young adults and and social media, which has been worsened um, with like remote learning as well. And people are putting up an image of themselves, but that's not who they are. Or even as simple as like, you know, I was, I was talking about this with a friend. It's like, oh yeah, this, this, this person's, you know, no longer taking my insurance for therapy. And they asked me if I still want to do it, but for $200. And I said, yes, because I, I just, I didn't want to say yes, but I did because it was just like, I couldn't say no. And it's like, that made me feel bad because I wasn't being true to like what I actually felt. So do you think there's increased elements of that, whether it be from social media that could also be contributing to the drug addiction problem because young people are not synced. Like it's a meditative thing, but they're not synced up with themselves. They don't know who they are. Well,
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's put it this way. So first of all, social media can be really, it it can be a great tool. Like I've used Twitter as a great tool to amplify my voice and my advocacy. And I was kind of discovered on Twitter, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I owe them a debt of gratitude for giving me a voice. And that's where social media can be really, really helpful and powerful. Uh, At the same time, I have two teenage kids. And I can tell you right now that TikTok is insidious. It's absolutely insidious because of the misinformation and the sexualization and the 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 way it's used to uh, to project how someone should appear or how they appear. It sends the wrong 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 message a lot of the time to my kids. And I spend a lot of the time talking to my kids about that misinformation that they're seeing. And what misinformation? I don't mean like what you see on mainstream media. Misinformation is you know when they talk about. Someone's talking about their sexuality or their gender or or uh, drugs or whatnot. That's just that person's opinion, right? And they're entitled to it. Freedom of speech. They're entitled to their opinion. But when it gets a hundred thousand likes or two hundred thousand likes on TikTok, and you see it over and over and over and over again, you start to think that wow, maybe that's more than just that person's opinion, but that's actually fact. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's where that dissonance kind of comes from a little bit. Uh, and you know, is in regards to like being honest and all that one of the things that i that i talk about a lot in my advocacy is that i really believe and i kind of learned this through recovery is that resentment is the root of evil it's not money it's not it's resentment and so i think you're seeing that a lot with a lot of younger people right now especially millennials you hear them complaining about oh i've got still got student debt to pay from college or I went to college and got this degree and I only got a $26 an hour job and I'm renting a room before other people in a house and Elon Musk is worth $200 billion, you know, F him, right? I hear that all the time and I'm just like, man, that, that's straight up to me, that's resentment. And it's like, you know, is it, are we making it hard, harder for people nowadays because the economy's become more specialized than it was 50 years ago? Yeah, it is. But you also have a better education now than you had 50 years ago. So for me, I'm a Gen Xer guy. And I'm and I'm a big believer in redemption, because I'm a person that had everything I had a lot. I lost it all all the way down to homelessness. And I was able to get it back in recovery at 50 years old. Okay, I'm, I'm not some young spry kid fresh out of Columbia University anymore. I'm a 50 year old guy with no college degree. And I was able to get it all back. Because that's how great this place is that we live, we call America, mm-hmm. right? Where it really is the land of opportunity. You just need to create those opportunities. So you need to go out there and do that work and hustle and it can happen. And I did it by not having any resentment. Do things always go my way? No. Do I have a million dollars in the bank? No. But am I grateful for what I have? You bet, you bet I am. Absolutely grateful for what I have because I've actually been on the other side where I've had nothing. And I think that that's kind of what we're missing. Um, especially with a lot of the younger folk, there's a lot of this weird kind of sense of entitlement where they think that they're supposed to get their 40 acres in a mule, man. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I'm just kind of like, nah, I mean, you got to work yeah. hard to get your stuff. And it's I think the participation kind
0: of trophies from, from T-ball. I'm telling
1: yeah. You. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I, I have, you know, privately, I have some really strong feelings about that. So when I talk to my kids now, it, I talk to them through a lens of recovery and I talk to them about accountability because it's part of it. Personal responsibility is part of it. Does, did the system help me when I was you know, going through addiction and, and eventually into rehab and recovery? Yeah, they did. You know, and that's what's the, the greatest thing about this country is that we are a mixed economy. We're a capitalist country with a ton of social programs, actually, more social programs than any other country in the world. And yet, we're kind of resentful of the fact that we don't get enough. And I just kind of think that, you know, I'm like, well, so some of that may be true and there might be some corruption and there might be people making too much money like Elon Musk at the same time. It's like, you know what, me and my wife from our generation, it's like, Hey, if you got to get a second job, you got to get a second job. You just got to do, you know? And I think that that's getting lost right now.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it was the book Siddhartha by Herman, uh, Herman Hess. I don't know if that was the title, but he talks about, uh, they talk about resentment. I think the quote was um, like bitterness or resentment is like holding, like burning hot coals. The only person you hurt is, is yourself. And I think that was like a really clicking moment for me because personally I, it was like, I, I feel like we were all like, oh, I, I did this for this person. You know, the least they could do is the same for me. And we, we hold this like tit for tat um, yeah. generosity. And I think it's just so bad, like everyone that you interact with, with your friends, like they're not all going to live up to your standards all the time. And it's like if you're measuring your life's interactions based on I did this, therefore I'm owed this, then you're not doing it out of like, you know, selflessness or whatever or treating that person because they're your friend and you love them or whatever. You're doing it because you have an expectation of like reciprocity and that only leads to misery. That leads to resentment. Absolutely agree. Um, And that's,
1: you know, one of the big things in recovery that you learn to let go of is you let them learn go of the resentments that you have towards other people. And then you go and ask those people that you've harmed to kind of forgive you and forgive those resentments that they have against you. And not everyone's going to do that. There's still some people that I hurt in my addiction that are like, F you, man, I, I can't, I can't, you know, and I'm okay with that. But at least I did my part to try. And I certainly don't hold any resentments against that. Mm-hmm. And that, that is one of the most liberating things that, that could have happened to me in recovery. So now, ironically, my life is better now in recovery than it was even before I fell into my addiction. Because I can be honest with myself. I can be honest with my wife. I can be honest with you, with my kids. Uh, and that's, that's the most freedom this is the most freedom I've ever had in my life. Now at 51 years old, I'm the most free mentally,
0: physically, spiritually than I've ever been in my entire life. So, so you would say that that was like the one good outcome or many good outcomes of your journey that you had that people, peop, some people, you know, don't, don't suffer and they, and they never get to that conclusion. They live in a, in a, you know, maybe the bubble life and they mm-hmm. never reach that. It's yeah. And,
1: you know, and for me, there's other factors like, you know, faith plays a part in my life now where it didn't before. Um, I'm not super into organized religion, but I certainly believe in God and I have a ton of faith. And I think that helps me keep that resentment at bay. Um, mm-hmm. And also, it's just it's almost like I, I always equated in my head to my old Nintendo 64 that I had back in the in the 90s, man, where I could hit the reset button. Mm mm-hmm. And that was truly what I got is I got a chance to hit the reset button. I had to go through hell to get there. Um, I did. And I put my family through hell to get there and that's still healing. You know, it takes time to heal, but at least now I can, I'm, I'm going through it and I can be honest with them. And certainly my wife and kids, eyes are, are wide open now, and there's no more secrets or anything like that. And that's a very liberating thing. And that's where the healing and the trust and the love and all that comes, comes back.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Um, So where um, just, I just want to wrap up with, with this Um, where can people um, support you, support what you're doing, help what local organizations, like, is there a way that like, you know, me here in Virginia, I can look into finding an organization that could solve the problem. Like what, what can we do on a state by state or city by city scale that you're doing in, in San Francisco? Okay. Well, there's a few things. So one, I'm, I'm a founding member
1: and part of the California Peace Coalition here in, in California. And we're a group that's made up of myself, Michael Schellenberger, uh, uh, Soledad Ursua from Southern California, and others that founded this organization that, and we have our whole agenda on there. Where we talk about you know uh, uh, shelter first, treatment and then housing earn model. Uh, if you agree with that platform, I encourage you to go visit our website, CaliforniaPeaceCoalition.org, and find out more. You can join our coalition. It's free. We're uh, starting to look at taking the next steps to making it bigger and trying to secure some funding so we can do some more things. Uh, but it's definitely something that's out there. If you want to know more about me and my story, I've had a lot of media exposure. You can find me at my website, www.tomwolf.org. And I'm also on Twitter and my handles at at T wolf recovery. Take a look at my stuff. If um, you know, I just try to speak the truth. Uh, I'm not choosing one side or the other. I just speak the truth about what I think will help. Uh, and it's going to end up being a mixture of things in the end. Anyway, uh, it's not going to be this drug legalization stuff, uh, safe supply. That's I can't take people seriously when they really say that um, because you've never shot dope before. So you don't know, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, And it can't all just be like, you know, crack down, have a drug war again, it's going to have to be somewhere in the middle, uh, that's going to be the answer. Because in the end, what we have to do is we have to try to save people before they fall into this trap of addiction, and fall into this trap of homelessness. Because again, like I said earlier, it will be our undoing as a nation unless we figure out a way to turn this around. And I promise you, I promise you that while housing is always an end goal, it's not the only thing that it's going to take, it's going to take a lot more than that uh, to get folks from the street back to
0: being normal, productive members of society. Thank you. I, I think this adds so much to the just default positions that people have, of, of you know, maybe libertarians like legalize all drugs and maybe conservatives, like let's throw the, all these people in jail. Um, I think you, what you're talking about is sh- so important. Um, so I really want to thank you for doing that. Um, and your journey is like one of the most inspiring things I've ever heard. So um, I, really, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It's my pleasure, David. I appreciate you. And
1: anyone else, you know, if you have questions out there, you can reach me through Twitter or whatever. I'll answer them, man. I'm pretty much open to anybody. Um, And unless, you know, you're you're too far out there, man, but uh, I'll try to work with you (laughs) and, and try to move this conversation forward. So thank you again, David.
0: Thanks for joining, Tom. Thank you. Hi Welcome to another episode of the Opposing Points podcast. My guest today is Thomas Wolf. He's a recovery and homelessness advocate and also a drug policy reform advocate. Tom, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Thank you, David. It's great to be here. So I was reading a, a little bit about uh, you know quotes um, that you gave in, in the book San Francisco, uh, San Francisco uh, by Michael Schellenberger. I did a little bit more research um, on you as well once I saw you there. Um, and I really wanted to have this uh, conversation with you. Um, so to start off, can you give a little bit of a background of your story and the timeline that went with it? I think your story is one that resonates with a lot of people. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just kind of like your regular middle class guy. I'm
1: a family guy. I'm married. I have two kids. Uh, and, you know, my story happened in a very short period of time in the span of about five years. Uh, in early 2015, I went in for surgery on my foot. And uh, after the surgery was successful, they sent me home with a month's supply of 10 milligram oxycodone to manage the pain. I had my foot in a boot in a boot. I was on crutches. And uh, and it was in a lot of pain because they had to break my foot and reset it and insert a couple of titanium screws in my foot. So it was it was pretty invasive surgery. And uh, they gave me this 30-day supply of oxycodone for the pain. And, uh, I started taking, you know, the 10 milligram pills and they worked really, really well, maybe a little too well, uh, after I took that first 10 milligram pill, you know, I felt a little loopy like you do when you take Vicodin or Percocet, maybe after you've had your wisdom teeth out or something like that. So I was like, man, this feels kind of good, but I was in a lot of pain still in my foot. So I took two pills one day instead of just one as directed and I got higher and I really liked the way that made me feel, uh, so. I, one day I took three pills, 30 milligrams all at once. And that was kind of like the, the point where I kind of jumped the shark from just kind of feeling a little loopy and not having any pain to complete and total euphoria where life was good. I didn't have any problems, any marital problems I had went away, any financial problems I had went away for about three to four hours. And I really, really liked that feeling. So I kept taking three at a time to try to maintain that. Kind of feeling of euphoria, uh, and so you know, with that 30-day supply, instead of it lasting me a, a month, it lasted me about 10 days, and I started to run out. And so, as I noticed after about day seven, I was running low. I started to cut down, started taking two at a time or one at a time, and I started not feeling so good because that one or two pills wasn't giving me the same high and euphoric feeling that the three pills were. And uh, and then I started feeling kind of chills. I started obsessing. Over the pills all the time. I was thinking about them all the time. I started thinking about how can I get more right now, Um, and I started to feel what what you refer to as dope sick, uh, or going into withdrawal from the drug itself. So I had chills. I had some stomach issues. uh, I was restless. I had some anxiety, and again the the obsession of over getting more pills itself. So I tried to get a refill, and you know they laughed at me at the pharmacy because it was less than 30 days. So that wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at that point, instead of just kind of sucking it up and trying to fight through those withdrawals, I started uh, going online to find out where I could purchase these pills online uh, in San Francisco. And I, and I'd heard of a place called pill Hill, which is uh, a corner down in the tenderloin in San Francisco in the tenderloin neighborhood called uh, golden gate and Leavenworth streets. Mm-hmm. And so I actually Googled Pill Hill and it brought me to YouTube where I found a couple of videos that were referring to, this is the hot spot to go and buy pain pills on the street in San Francisco. So one day, you know, I told my wife a lie and said I had a doctor's appointment and hopped into the car with my boot on my foot and I drove down to Golden Gate and Leavenworth, got out, walked around and sure enough, I found five or six different guys selling a variety of different opioids on the street. Uh, anything from 30 milligram oxycodones, all the way up to 80 milligram oxycodone tablets for about $30 a pill. And I started purchasing them on the street. And that's kind of how my addiction started to accelerate. Uh, And then over the next two years, so the rest of 2015 and 2016, my addiction accelerated or increased to the point where I was taking about 560 milligrams of oxycodone a day. So I went from a 10 milligram prescription to 560 milligrams of oxycodone in a two-year period. So if you took 560 milligrams right now, David, you would die. You would just die of overdose, right? But, you know, addiction is a progressive disease. And also you build up tolerance to the pills itself that you're taking to the medication. So I had to take more and more and more. And that meant that I was taking 80 milligram tablets, seven of them a day at $30 a pill. That's $210 a day times seven days a week. So you can imagine uh, how expensive
0: that got Mm -hmm. very, very quickly. So that, that first time that you, that you went, um, was, there, was there kind of like, you know, because you're saying you had to, to tell a lie to your, to your wife. I'm, I'm guessing that didn't feel too good. Um, and then, you know, you go and meet these people. There's got to be, I would assume, a little bit of an element of like terrified because like it's not something you had done before. Um, so what was it like dealing with that? And when did that kind of fear dissipate? so that that's a great question uh so yeah i was absolutely terrified the first time i went down there uh so i
1: you know i want to just preface this by saying you know i've i would never been in trouble with the law until mm-hmm. i was 48 years old the mm-hmm. worst thing that ever happened to me was a speeding ticket in my whole life mm-hmm. so when i talk about just a regular guy i mean it i was just a regular guy going through life right and now i find myself going down to one of the toughest neighborhoods in san francisco uh just going off on the street on kind of like blind faith out of desperation to find these drugs so I was absolutely terrified the the irony is that the guys there were like as long as you got the money we'll do business with you mm-hmm. so for them it's all about making money you know and uh once I found one guy that that I could be consistent with I just started going to that same same individual to buy pills on a regular on a regular basis and he had you know, two prescriptions himself that were getting prescribed to him from his doctor. He was actually a veteran, so this it's really sad. He was a he was a vet who had two scripts from the VA, one for thirty milligram morphine and one for eighty milligram oxycodone. Uh, and he would keep half the morphine for him, and he would sell all the rest on the street. And I probably made him a hundred thousand dollars. And I'm not even exaggerating. I mean, literally, it like I was saying, two hundred ten dollars a day, times seven days a week. Um, yeah, I went bankrupt literally bankrupt, purchasing those pills on the street. And after a while, the fear goes away because one, you need those drugs. And two, you start to build a relationship with that, with that dealer. And so there became kind of a certain uneasy trust there. And as long as he was there, he would do business with me. And I knew I was getting the the product that I needed. So pretty soon it just became regular because once you go down
0: there enough times, you start getting used to it. Right. And, and how many, like how long was it before you had your kind of first run in with law enforcement?
1: Well, so, you know, things kind of went South when, um, you know, during that period of time, 2015, 2016, 2017, I actually quit my job because I was going into work and I was using. Um, And before that happened, we started having some big time financial problems, obviously, because I was, I stopped paying the mortgage. Uh, which was the big thing. And I was hiding that from my wife, which also didn't feel very good at all. Uh, And I was using that money that was supposed to go to pay the mortgage payment to buy drugs. And uh, the levy kind of broke one day uh, because I I was usually intercepting the mail so that my wife wouldn't see anything that was coming, like, you know, collection notices, things like that. And intercepting phone calls too. Till one day my wife intercepted the mail instead of me. And there was a foreclosure notice in the mail from our bank that we were going to lose our house because I hadn't paid the mortgage in six months. And that's when the levy broke. And that's when the wheels kind of came off the wagon and my wife started realizing that we had a big problem. And I think she knew that there was a problem before that, but, you know, denial is a very powerful thing. Uh, And, you know, for her, it was like, here's this guy that's never had a problem. I've been with him for 20 years. What the hell is going on? Uh, All of a sudden our world is upside down. So that was really difficult for her and for my kids. Uh, and that's something I've had to own in my recovery, too, uh, from, from the addiction. Uh, and at that point, you know, I kind of got cut off from the money. She kind of took charge of what little money we had left. So I made the fateful decision to switch over to heroin. And that's when you start, I started having problems with law enforcement. Because in San Francisco, all you have to do is walk down a block from Golden Gate and Leavenworth to Golden Gate and Hyde, and you can buy you know, black tar heroin right there on the street for 10 bucks, which is a lot cheaper than the pills. So that's, uh, when I switched over to heroin and started using heroin and then, you know, that eventually spiraled me into homelessness, uh, because I was stealing money from my wife. And one night I took the car at two o'clock in the morning to go down and score dope. This was in, um, in late 2017, uh, actually it was early 2018, like January of 2018. And, uh, I didn't come home for 11 days. I went on an 11 day bender. And I was found 11 days later by the police. They came knocking on the window of my minivan and said, hey, are you Thomas Wolfe? And I said, yeah. And they said, you know, your wife's been looking for you. She filed a missing persons report. You need to go home. And the thing is, is when they found me, there was foil and straws and needles all over the car. And I was filthy and dirty. So they knew that I was sitting there using drugs, but they didn't arrest me. They told me to go home. And so I did. I went home and my wife was waiting for me with a packed bag saying you either need to go to rehab, and I found a treatment bed for you, or you need to get out. And at that very moment, I was dope sick. Mm-hmm. And so I made it that point, I was like, well, you know, heroin, me getting rid of this dope sickness is more important than anything else. So I said, forget it, I'm out of here. And I left and I spent the next six months homeless on the streets of San Francisco. And that's when I started to get in trouble with the law.
0: How long did it take you to kind of almost totally lose yourself or lose control like because it's it sounds like you, you you were able to hold a job for a little bit um and then eventually it was just like it really became the focus well yeah you know you hear that term functioning
1: addict you right Hear that or functioning alcoholic there's people that are alcoholics that function at a very high level and people that are addicts that function at a very very high level uh out there including you know sons of political officials and things like that right Um, the wheels came off the wagon for me when I transitioned over to heroin, because once I did that, then I started doing stuff like, um, I was bringing needles already pre-mixed with heroin into my job Mm -hmm. and I would go to the bathroom on my lunch break and I would shoot up in the bathroom stall. And then I would literally nod out on the toilet and then wake up and then go back to my desk and nod out some more. And pretty soon they caught on to that. So uh, I was getting in trouble at my job. So I just made a decision one day to just stop going to work. And I quit. I quit my $80,000 a year job that I had with the city, uh, you know, and uh, chose heroin, chose my addiction over that. And it's a choice that I didn't have a choice in. Let's put it that way. You you know, it's a disease uh, of the mind that hijacks your basic survival instincts. Uh, And I'm not justifying my actions. I have to own all of those in recovery. But I'm just telling you that that's, that's how it went down
0: were there any other, like, did it, does it come as, as a surprise to you that you got addicted? Like, were there any, you know, some people like, oh, I have to like, keep, you know, eating chocolate once a day. Like, were there any like warning signs that, you know, that you could have a, a personality that would lend itself to this?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. So, you know, I've, I've been asked that before. And so I believe that addiction is hereditary, like it runs in your genes, you know, and, uh, I come from a family of alcoholics. You know, I remember mixing the bourbon and soda for my grandfather when I was 10 years old and giving it to him because at 1030 in the morning, he was already having a drink. Mm -hmm. Right. And he was an old World War II veteran guy, you know, and I just thought that that was normal and cool because if my grandfather was doing it, then it must be okay, Right. I was 10. What did I know? Um, So it's just, you know, over the years, I think I, you know, I wasn't like a, a heavy drinker, but I was definitely a weekend warrior drinker. Yeah. I was that guy that would go to a party and drink a little too much. And my wife would have to drive home or I'd be praying to the porcelain goddess at the end of the night, mm-hmm. or I'm the kind of guy that would go to Vegas and lose all his money and have to come back to my wife groveling that I blew, you know, way more than I was supposed to. So I think the tendencies were there. It just didn't manifest until I started using
0: opioids. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. There, there's also, um, you mentioned your, your grandfather was a world war II veteran. So there's also kind of some theories that, you know, I'm sure like trauma can can literally change your genes. So it's like what what he experienced and like maybe learned a depend like a dependency on alcohol from war, like could have changed like his makeup and that can can be passed on. Yeah. I mean it's
1: possible. I mean, my dad was an army brat. So we moved around a lot because my, my grandfather was a career career in the service, right? Yeah. So I, that may have had an effect. Absolutely,
0: right, right. Um, and so we're seeing kind of your story happening across across the population, especially young people um, these these days. Um, what are some of the the things that you think about in regards to reform? Um, We see some, some, some like open air drug dens in in San Francisco. They're trying to do the same thing in New York city. Um, What are the different approaches to, to reform and, and what do you think works best? Well, so this is, this is where it gets murky because you have, um, there's a
1: big push in this country to follow kind of what they're doing in Canada, which they're moving towards, not just full decriminalization, but they're moving towards safe supply. And eventually what their goal is, I think, is drug legalization Mm -hmm. of, of these hard drugs. And the only thing I'll say about that is that, you know, look, alcohol is legal and regulated, yet more people die from that legally regulated drug than any other drug on the planet. So it's not about whether it's legal or not. And I think that's where people miss the point. It's about the danger of the actual drug itself. And while fentanyl, if used in a controlled setting, like in a hospital, isn't necessarily dangerous, how can you depend, how can you assume that being able to go into a dispensary like you can for marijuana and purchase fentanyl or heroin, that that person is going to use that safely? And let's face it, uh, marijuana, it doesn't have the same addictive properties as, as fentanyl or heroin does. So we're talking about a completely different animal that requires a completely different approach to what, we're, what we've been doing. But to kind of answer your question, the answer lies somewhere in the middle on this. You know, you hear the term harm reduction now, and that's kind of become the federal model uh, in their approach to the overdose crisis. And I agree that harm reduction is going to play a role. Uh, but the, uh, one of the initial principles of harm reduction was to event was to keep somebody alive long enough, in the hopes that they would find the miracle of recovery and then end up abstinent from from this particular drug that they're addicted to. That has kind of been twisted or it has morphed into just managing someone's addiction for as long as they choose to actually be addicted and that's two very very different things because now you're talking about creating neo-feudalism where you're going to have 20 million people and that's how many people are struggling with addiction in this country it's 20 million uh, people that are going to become dependent upon a drug that you want then the government to be involved in how that drug is doled out to that individual Mm-hmm. and that's a pretty pretty uh one that's a big number 20 million and two that's a pretty serious uh undertaking that you you know asking the government to basically play drug dealer for
0: someone so i'm not a party to that either so the answer is going to lie somewhere in the middle okay i um i read the book by uh, marty mccary um called the price we pay and one of the things he talks about is um is opioids and how easily they're handed out or maybe um you know, there's like standard, like you mentioned, you got 30 day supply, um, for, for surgery. So he talks about like the amount, the dosage and how we kind of just, here's a month, like we hand it out like, um, like candy, or there's some surgeries where you may not even need, um, such a strong prescription. And maybe you might be able to get by on, on like Tylenol or Advil. Um, do you think that they're handed out too easily and too uniformly, um, just as a as a quick kind of like, here you go. Here's a pain med. Cause you had a minor surgery. So I think they were, I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I mean, it, clearly the studies have
1: shown and the government has said, said as much as self that they're reducing the amount of opioid prescriptions. Now it's really hard to get an, a prescription for oxycodone from your doctor. Now mm-hmm. the problem is, is that the whole thing with the Sacklers and the overdose and, and the, the oxycodone over prescribing set the table for where we're at today. And what, What I mean by setting the table is that you created an entire generation of people that are now addicted to Oxycontin or Oxycodone, Uh, maybe unknowingly, maybe knowingly. I think a lot of it was knowingly, uh, but the, the, the money was too good to say no. I really believe that that is the case because there's so many doctors out there, and I'm 51, so I remember going to my doctor and saying, hey, my back hurts, and they're writing me a prescription for Tramadol in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like it was no big deal. And that's an opioid too. And it was a prescription with refills. So clearly they were just, you know, doling this stuff out. You know, you heard about that doctor that was meeting his patients at Starbucks and writing scripts at Starbucks for a little extra cash into the table. So, you know, the money was too good to, to turn it down. And it set the table for the crisis that we have today. And so now the government's a little bit behind on this and that they're cracking down on over prescribing of opioids but we've already kind of dealt with that crisis in a lot of ways. And now the overdoses have moved on to illicit drugs because all those people got addicted to those drugs 20 years ago. They're still addicted now and they've had to move on to heroin and fentanyl and all those things. And so now we have all those people are, are dying because the fentanyl itself is 10 to 50 times stronger than the stuff that they were getting prescribed 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned Sackler. I believe he's like the focus of the show. Um, dope sick. Right. Um, Could you provide a little bit of a brief background of what exactly his influence was um, in terms of history and the fentanyl or, or drugs? Well, sure.
1: So, you know, Purdue Pharma
0: was one of the main, not the only, but one of the main manufacturers
1: of Oxycontin back in the 80s and the 90s. And when they lobbied the federal government, the FDA, they lobbied them, with a lot of lobbying, a lot of money, a lot of campaign financing uh, to basically declare that OxyContin was not necessarily an addictive drug and that it was safe to use long term for, uh, for pain management. And, you know, that's just a lie, right? It's mm-hmm. a flat out lie. And that's why they're in court today. And that's why yesterday the judge actually overturned the settlement with Sackler. And said no you know they're not they don't get to escape criminal prosecution as they shouldn't they should all be a- anyone involved with that down the line should be facing some type of justice for the for for what they have done they created a crisis an overdose and an addiction crisis that did not exist prior to that right of millions and millions of people and they caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people Uh, while serving a very small percentage of people that need actually needed the drugs for pain management that have chronic pain. So, you know, the whole thing about the addiction crisis and the homelessness crisis too, is that this crisis is a crisis about trade-offs, right? That's how everyone needs to start looking at this. It's a crisis about trade-offs. And so was that trade-off worth it to addict 20 million people to a drug to save Uh, a few hundred thousand people that had chronic pain symptoms. No, absolutely not. So they set the table for what we're facing now. And I I don't think that the settlement that was given to them a couple of years ago was anything close to what it should be. I think that their finances should be completely seized. Mm -hmm. I think all that money needs to be redistributed to addiction treatment services uh, throughout the country, not just like a class action settlement where you get a check for nine bucks um i think it needs to actually be poured into you know some type of model where you have almost like a socialized medicine model where where you have like a statewide addiction treatment system in each and every state to help people cope with this terrible crisis that they brought on 20 years ago that has now morphed into something far far worse
0: so 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 with with the current like kind of way of doing things what do you what do you believe is really the best way to like wean people off drugs so so you're out there advocating, um, especially, you know, with the homeless, there's a, there's a big drug addiction problem. Um, when, when you're out there, what, what, how do you do it?
1: Well, so it's going to take a combination of things, right? Um, so look, the drugs are 50 to hundred times stronger than they were just three years ago on the streets. Okay. Illicit fentanyl really has changed the game. And I don't know anybody that's kicked fentanyl cold turkey you know, you've heard that term, oh, I had to white knuckle it, you know, you might be able to do that with heroin, but you can't do that with fentanyl. It's too strong. So you need help. You need what they call medically assisted treatment. Uh, And that there's two drugs that are used right now for opioid withdrawal. One of them is methadone, which Mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of, but it's there. Uh, And the other one is suboxone or buprenorphine. And that's an opioid inhibitor. And the reason I like that drug is that when I got arrested after my sixth time, being arrested out there on the streets. And I went to jail. I met with a triage nurse in jail and she asked me, do you use drugs? And I said, yes. And they said, well, what and how much? And I told them heroin about a gram a day and a little bit of fentanyl. And they said, okay. So the next day when I was in full withdrawal in my jail cell, a nurse came by and said, Hey, pill call Wolf, here you go. And they handed me some of this buprenorphine and they said, let it melt under your tongue. And within two minutes, I felt normal. The actual physical withdrawals went away. The sweats, the shakes, all of that, Just it just literally disappeared within minutes. And I was just sitting up and I felt fine. So um, I took that for five days on a taper in jail to kick my heroin uh, withdrawal. And uh, and that was it. And ever since then, I've been abstinent from all drugs and alcohol in recovery. Um, But that works, that drug works. And that's a drug that we need to make more widely available. And that's a harm reduction thing. And so that's where I'm in line with harm reductionists. We need that medically assisted treatment because it's about improving the quality of that individual's life. Mm -hmm. Is is suboxone and methadone highly addictive? Yes, it is. But does it affect you in the same manner that fentanyl and heroin do? No, they do not. So you're able to function. And it gets back to that whole functioning addict or functioning alcoholic thing. You're able to function. You can go work and get a job under those conditions where you can't if you're shooting heroin all day long. Or you're smoking fentanyl all day long. So that's one thing that I support. And then the other thing is that, you know, we got to do something about the black market, man. I mm-hmm. mean, let's face it, the cartels are are so big and powerful in Mexico now that the Mexican government doesn't want anything to do with them mm-hmm. anymore. They literally cut a deal with the cartels, with the Sinaloa cartel and others to just say, you guys go ahead and do your thing. We're gonna we're gonna hang back and be cool because it would be a war. It would literally be a war. That's how that's how bad it is, right? And so what did the cartels do? They figured out how to synthesize drugs, make synthetic drugs instead of growing opium poppies everywhere and harvesting them and making heroin. They actually found some guys in China, some, some chemical companies, bought the precursors from China, smuggled them into Mexico, and then turned them into illicit fentanyl in these clandestine labs that are usually buried deep within cities that are hard to find, and then they smuggle them out uh, by the hundreds and hundreds of kilos
0: and ship them up to the United States for distribution. Wow. Um, there's like yeah. a bunch of like Walter White's, basically. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, that's unreal. Uh, so one of the things you also advocate is is um, is a combination of, of public health and law enforcement. Um, I think that's a discussion that's kind of ongoing uh, in, in a lot of cities, especially with regards to police reform. How do you believe that that, um, benefits, um, people that are suffering from you know, addiction or homelessness? Well, look, so I think that you just hit the nail
1: on the head. The answer here is cooperation between public health and law enforcement. So what, you know, right now in this country, you hear that term "end the war on drugs and the drug war, you hear the drug policy Alliance, that's their whole mantra, mm-hmm. Right. And it's true that a lot of people have PTSD from the war on drugs, because we were too draconian, we were too harsh in our sentencing with the mandatory minimums and things like that. Those were probably pretty bad decisions that, that we made at the time, uh, is, is kind of like a knee jerk reaction to the to the crack crisis that was out there affecting primarily the black community. Right? right. Uh, so we don't want to make that same mistake again. But that doesn't mean that we can't, reform and actually have sensible law enforcement to go along with our public health approach because the bottom line is that there is a subset of people out there especially people that are struggling with homelessness that require some type of intervention in regards to their addiction they just do i required intervention on the street i had to get arrested six times but after that six time yeah man they locked me up for three months which was enough time for me to get clean And then make that decision to go to rehab and get treatment and try to get better and turn my life around. There's a lot of people on the street right now that require that type of approach. Because if you just keep coming with carrots and carrots and carrots for people and absolutely no sticks, then people are just going to continue to make that decision to use, not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to, because the addiction is so strong. So we need to come at them with this public health approach of using, you know, medically assisted treatment, but we also have to look at mandated treatment and drug courts as a vehicle, especially for those that are hardest to help that are already on the street to get off the street and get into treatment. Because one of the things I I remind people of is that, so I was homeless. I spent six months on the street. I lived on a doorway, in a doorway on Golden Gate Avenue in San Francisco for six months on a piece of cardboard. I didn't even have a tent. Okay. But. Going to drug treatment, six-month inpatient drug treatment, ended my homelessness. And that's something that people don't talk about. So when you're in an inpatient program, you're housed, you're clothed, you're fed, you're given counseling. Those are all things that equate to you not being homeless. I got help with finding a job. All these different things that were that were provided to me. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things we have to think about is that drug treatment ends people's homelessness Uh, especially inpatient drug treatment, outpatient treatment, not necessarily, but inpatient treatment for those that are hardest to help. That is really the way out.
0: Yeah. I think, um, you know, just, just based on where I'm from, there were, um, there were some, you know, I guess you could say well-off, well-off people that, you know, when they were 20 in their twenties, trust fund kids, they, or even see, you see it with celebrities. They, they, they go to rehab, they get out and they relapse pretty quickly is, is, there, is, it, is it just a numbers game when it comes to, to to this? Or is there a certain style of rehab that works better than others, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. The answer to that is I don't have like a really great answer for you, except that everybody's journey and recovery is different. Mm-hmm. right? So for me, it was an abstinence-based program. That's what I needed right? I needed to just give it all up, including the alcohol, even though I didn't necessarily consider myself an alcoholic. But I knew that that could open the door to other things because alcohol, the nature of alcohol itself clouds your judgment, right? Mm -hmm. So because it is also a drug. Uh, But for other people, they need long term use of medication to help them function. Um, Some people need 12 step type of help, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the tools that I use to help me stay in recovery. I go to a lot of meetings and a lot of basements of churches, man, and sit, sit around a lot of other people that are in the same boat that I am. And that's a great source of support, right? Right. So it really just kind of depends on what's out there and what's available. And then also what you can afford. And I think that's where we run into trouble. So a lot of addiction treatment programs are for profit and a lot of them require insurance. And if you don't have insurance, then you need, you know, in California, we call it Medi-Cal. Right in Texas, they call it Meditex, you know, uh, where that'll pay for up to 90 days of treatment in California. Um, <clears throat> but treatment can be really, really expensive, so we need to look at, you know, not just not just private donations and funding for addiction treatment programs, but we need to look at the government actually stepping in. And this is one of those areas where, you know, like I was saying earlier, that you know maybe we need socialized a socialized medicine program for addiction and mental health specifically. Because look, you have 165,000 to 200,000 people that are homeless in California right now. And depending on who you talk to, uh, and just based on my experience of being on the street, about 70 to 80% of them are struggling with addiction or untreated mental illness, Mm -hmm. right? And most of them don't have insurance because they don't have a job. right? So we got to figure out a way as a community, as a society to, to make a decision to help them. Because if, you know... If you go to the far, far right and they say, well, just let them die, let them sit out there and suffer, that messes up the rest of the community. Because then you have someone just shooting dope on the street, out in the open while your kids walk by and defecating on the street and leaving their used needles on the street or having them going through a mental crisis, banging their head on the wall on the street. Nobody wants to see that. We want to have that individual in a safe place where he can get the services that he or she needs. So that's one of those trade-offs again, that we should, we should be considering.
0: Wow. Um, it's I, uh, I know uh, the mayor of San Francisco, I believe uh, London breed is her name um, kind of, I don't know if, it, if, if she turned her previous positions, but she came out pretty strong um, on what's going on in San Francisco. And it happens to be pretty bad in San Francisco. Um, I've I lived in New York city for three years and, um, I think I walked by someone, you know, shooting up drugs once, but um, and you know, in like the Penn Station area. But I, I, th- I think since since COVID, the pandemic happened. It's it's gotten a lot worse as far as people living outdoors and 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 crime. But still, San Francisco um, spends more than other cities. I think much more on, on this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's just not being spent? On the right things? Um, what wh- What's what's wrong with the model that San Francisco is doing or different versus New York City, for example? So that's a uh, great question. So look, San
1: Francisco has anywhere from 8,000 to 17,000 homeless people in a, in a city with a population of about 800,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a pretty high number. But San Francisco also spends about $100,000 a year per homeless individual which is far more than any other city in the nation. So at a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, if we're talking about, well, it's just a housing problem for a hundred grand a year, man, you could house every single one of them like that, like that, but we don't. Right. Because the way that that money is spent and the way that it has to be spent and the way that the government requires that money to be spent, it requires, you know um, all this different reporting and, and, certain harm reduction requirements for treatment and certain other requirements for housing, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes convoluted. So the government's like, well, we don't want to deal with it. So we're going to hire a bunch of nonprofits and contract with them and have them do all the work instead. So now San Francisco has a situation where they have 60 nonprofits uh, working and doing a lot of duplicative work where they're overlapping each other with services, right? Getting paid, 260 million dollars a year by the city and county of San Francisco to do this work and having, you know, little or no reporting or oversight requirements as to its overall performance of the work that they're doing. Now, do they do good work? Yeah, they do good work. You know, nonprofits work really hard. They hire people that are coming out of the criminal justice system and give them opportunities where others won't. So there's a lot of good things that nonprofits do do. I was helped by a nonprofit. I got I went to treatment through the Salvation Army. They're a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Right, so I got helped by them. So they do good work. The problem is, is when you have sixty nonprofits all trying to do the same job at the same time and they're not talking to each other, mm-hmm. then you get a lot of needless spending, a lot of wasted money, and you get very, very limited results. Especially because there's no oversight or accountability as to how that money is being spent uh, from the city and then higher up the chain to from the state and then eventually the federal government. So that's the kind of thing that needs to change. We need to talk about outcomes. And then figure out a way to streamline some of those services so that we don't have to spend a hundred thousand dollars per homeless person just to give that individual, their body autonomy and their choice to stay on the street and shoot dope and live in a tent. That's, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. So, so we really need to look at, we need to look carefully at how we're spending that money, who gets that money and how we're going to measure results
0: going forward. Right. Um, And the most, most cities, uh, tend to be uh, at least the heavily populated ones tend to be uh, you know blue cities or, or democratic cities um is there any difference between uh, how how that stuff is handled there versus um more like a like I guess a red city or red state um, in terms of harm like harm reduction homelessness I mean I think it's mentioned in in San Francisco um that like Arizona doesn't have the same sort of problem um, neither
1: neither does Miami they don't right. have the same kind of problem either, and, and and neither does New York to an extent. New York has right to shelter; they have mm-hmm. a right to shelter ordinance. So the whole state of California really needs that at the very least. San Francisco and L.A. need a right to shelter ordinance, and that's something that I'm considering. You know, putting my activism activism towards is having a ballot measure in San Francisco to have uh, to put a right to shelter uh, ordinance on the books here uh, to force the city to invest. In a more expansive shelter system while they scale up permanent supportive housing for people so that you don't have people waiting five years on the street for that supposed permanent supportive housing because that's how long it takes to build it
0: or acquire it okay and and why do you think that um san francisco um suffers from higher levels of unsheltered homelessness as compared to like new york city (laughs) so there's Okay, so
1: let me get back to that blue state thing or blue city thing versus red city thing (laughs) Uh, because it's related, right? So I was in Austin a couple of months ago in October Mm -hmm. and they're they're a city that's kind of recently moved to the left, to their progressive left with their mayor and many members of their city council, Mm -hmm. but they still have some Republican influence um, in that city. And so it's not entirely one party rule there there's some accountability coming from both sides for each other's policy requests and desires. Right. Mm -hmm. And they seem to have found some kind of balance where they're taking a very compassionate approach towards the homeless. But at the same time in may of last year, they passed a homeless camping ban to, um, to now no longer allow people to just pitch a tent on the, on Sixth street, which is their main street in downtown Austin and camp like they were doing before. Mm -hmm. And they they then have expanded their shelter system as a result. And now, ironically, the city of Austin has more shelter beds than San Francisco does. So some of it has to do with this kind of one-party rule kind of thing. Uh, and then some of it has to do with just this liberal approach we have towards drug use. And this is where that harm reduction thing kind of gets twisted up a little bit. And this is where I kind of lose traction or where I have a problem with harm reduction advocates. Where there's, you know, again, the goal of harm reduction was to eventually move towards, you know, recovery and abstinence from the drug, not just managing your addiction forever. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've turned into in San Francisco, because the overarching goal of many of the advocates in San Francisco around harm reduction is drug legalization. This body autonomy that, hey, if you want to shoot dope, man, that's your business. Go ahead and go ahead and do that. You know, Um, the problem is, is that when you're out on the street and you're homeless um, and you're violating other people's civil liberties at the same time, Uh, as we're trying to respect yours, how is that really fair? And so we end up with a situation of where we're holding certain subgroups of people to a different standard of the law than what you and I are being held to. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where that victimology that Michael Schellenberger talks about in San Francisco comes from, right? And it is, it's a victim kind of mentality that, well, they're a victim, so we're just going to help them be comfortable, but we want them to stay where they're at until they decide that they've had enough. Well, even if you've decided that you've had enough, man, it's it's when you're all the way down on the street man, without intervention, it's damn near impossible to
0: get off the street. Right. And there's a difference, I guess, between legalization, right, which some states are doing, for example, with with marijuana and decriminalization. Can you talk about how each of those would kind of or I think decriminalization, how that would have an impact on right. on the goal of reducing the problem? So decriminalization and legalization are two completely different things. Legalization is what's
1: happened to marijuana, where you can walk into a pot dispensary in San Francisco and you can just, you know, go up to the counter and you can buy some weed or some vape pens that have THC in it and then go about your business, right? Decriminalization means that heroin and fentanyl is still illegal. But if you get caught with a small amount, like less than a 10-day supply Instead of being arrested and charged with a felony for drug possession, you're given a ticket, like a citation, like a parking ticket for about a hundred bucks, like a fine. And then what should happen is you should be then directed to some type of services, detox or treatment, or to talk to somebody. So, but what that's morphed into in San Francisco, uh, and this may change now with this new movement from our mayor to crack down on the drug dealing and stuff on the street, is that decriminalization just meant that the police aren't even going to bother to arrest you and make a report. So I think last month, I I get the crime stats monthly from San Francisco Police Department. And I think last month, they had one citation for drug possession in all of San Francisco. They arrested a bunch of drug dealers, but they only cited one guy for drug possession. So that's gone beyond decriminalization to where we're just not going to enforce it. So what they do in Portugal is a very different thing than what's happening in San Francisco. And I, Michael talks about that in his book, right. where drugs are decriminalized, but when you're caught with a less than a 10-day supply of heroin, you are given a citation, and you're ordered to report to an administrative court called the Commission for the Dissuasion of Addiction, where then you're sit, you, you go into this room and you're, you're there with a social worker and a cop, and a judge, and you're scolded by them, and basically offered treatment, literally by the next day, you can be in a treatment bed, right? We have no system like that in San Francisco, or really anywhere in the United States. In order to get into drug court, you have to get arrested, you have to go to jail, you have to wait till your court date, get in front of a judge, get referred to drug court, wait for that court date, go in front of that judge, and then hope that that judge will mandate you into inpatient treatment. But what happens in San Francisco is that when you go to drug court here now, because we're so progressive, we're mandating people to assisted outpatient treatment instead of inpatient treatment because forced treatment doesn't work according to the harm reduction folks. Right. Where, and let me explain why this is a problem. If you have 4,000 to 8,000 people that are homeless on the street, struggling with drug addiction, and you go out and you say, okay, we've had enough, we're going to bust you, and we're going to get you some help, and you refer them to drug court, and the drug court says, we're going to put you in assisted outpatient treatment three hours a week for the next six weeks, and then turn them loose and release them back out into homelessness. How, as a homeless person, are you going to even remember or want or care to show up to your assisted outpatient treatment three days a week, or three hours a week, every week? You're not. It's a joke. It's absolutely. I mean, I, I get really passionate about that because I'm like, we, we're literally arresting people, releasing them back into homelessness in this weird cycle over and over and over again, and, and are just cool with them shooting dope out in the middle of the street. Nobody has a problem with that. And the result of that is that this year alone, we've had 593 overdose deaths through November in San Francisco. And there is a direct correlation between that approach and those overdose deaths. And then of course the unabated organized drug dealing that we allow on the streets here.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so they're basically, you know, they're putting these people out that the conditions that they were in before they're back in them, they're just now sober and they have no way of. Right. So they just go and use, right. So they they go and shoplift some stuff from Walgreens,
1: go and sell it on the black market down at civic center, you know, score 10 bucks and go buy some fentanyl and they're back off to the races again.
0: I've seen some videos of that. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's happening in New York too. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's madness, um, with, with kind of lawlessness. Um, that's actually another topic I wanted to, to get on. I, I know that the, I don't know how to pronounce the gentleman's name, but the DA, this district attorney,
1: Chesa
0: uh, Bodine. Chesa Bodine. Um, yeah. I, I know that some of, some of the things, uh, he stands for is, are a bit controversial. Um, so, Um, Does the criminal justice system in San Francisco um, enable this to get worse, or are they just not doing enough, or is it a combination of both?
1: It's a combination of both. So they're not only enabling it with certain policies, but um, they're just not doing enough about it either. The problem is is that we now basically, for all intents and purposes, we have two public defender's offices in San Francisco. our, Our current district attorney used to be a public defender. He then comes into office and right off the top, he fired like 20 prosecutors, right? And then a bunch more quit after that. And then he replaced all of them with public defenders, with former public defenders. So Mm -hmm. now when you go into the Superior Court, you've got a former public defender as your prosecutor talking to his or her buddy, who's still a public defender from the public defender's office, talking to a judge that used to be a public defender. And they're making deals. Mm -hmm. And this is what happened. So that's part of the problem right there, uh, and that may sound controversial, but that's actually what's happening in San Francisco. You know, which is a big reason why we're about to recall him in June. There's going to be a recall election for our DA, and uh, you know, uh, that I'm part of that movement, and that movement. You know, we got over eighty-three thousand signatures to get on the ballot to recall him, and I think that it's going to happen. And I think it has to happen because, look what's happening in our city. We have, we have these mass smashing grabs happening. Of, of retail stores like Macy's, like Louis Vuitton, that happened a couple of weeks ago, that was all over the news. Neiman Marcus, people running in 30 people deep, right. stealing a bunch of purses and stuff and running out. You have uh, about 3,000 car break ins a month in San Francisco, which is more than New York. And we only have, again, 800,000 people in this city, 49 square mile radius, 3,000 break ins a month of cars yeah. being smashed, smashing grabs. You have anywhere from 100 to 150 drug dealers working in shifts 24-7 on the street, selling fentanyl and a variety of other drugs out in the open downtown. So they're not like off to the side in some alleyway somewhere. They're just out in the open on the corner slinging, right? And you have thousands of people struggling with addiction surrounding them in various states of either being high or in withdrawal. And then... And then they need to continue to get money for those drugs because those drugs aren't free. Mm -hmm. So they go out and rob. They steal stuff to do it, right? They loot, not loot. Loot's not the right word. They shoplift from Walgreens, from Macy's, from Ross, all those places. And then they come out and there's a bunch of fences that work in Civic Center in our city. And they sell them down there to these fences that buy them for pennies on the dollar, the items that they've stolen. And then those individuals use that money for drugs. So it's like a combination of all those things. And, you know, our current DA's approach is that drug dealing is a nonviolent crime and that we can't arrest our way out of this problem. But if you're committing crimes to support your addiction, that's no longer a drug addiction thing. That's a larceny thing. <laughs> you're, you're now stealing, right? So you need to be held accountable. Otherwise, what's stopping me from taking a U-Haul truck down to Macy's downtown and, and stealing $100,000 worth of stuff? What's really stopping me from doing that? Just because I'm not addicted to heroin anymore, I can't do it. But mm-hmm. because you are addicted to heroin, it's okay. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the issue right there.
0: Well, he he was uh, elected at the time, you know, following um, I think George George Floyd and um, and all that, right? So no, it was before the year before. before.
1: Wow. Yeah, he was before he got elected right before the pandemic. It was a very very close race. Uh, he was running against three other candidates. Two of them were more moderate. One of them was also progressive, and they kind of split the majority of the vote.
0: So oh. he kind
1: of snuck in underneath that and won uh, yeah. in a rank,
0: rank choice voting. Yeah, yeah. He was like someone else because spo- because I mean we we saw we saw like the Minneapolis the movement there, um, and it got you know shot down in Buffalo. She lost to the writing candidate, um, who was happened to be the previous. But like people generally don't aren't voting for these things. So I was like, how did this guy? <laughs> get in well, there. Pe- people aren't
1: generally voting for this thing now because we're seeing right. the results of the defund the police movement now, yeah. right? You're seeing cities like Portland that are burning, uh Seattle's in trouble. Uh you know, LA has 74,000 homeless people uh and now their murder rate is exploding. Oakland has had 132 homicides this year. Uh and you know, they were one of the first cities after Minneapolis to defund their police department. They cut 18 million dollars from their budget and now they're they're putting a bunch of that money back to hire more cops. The problem is, is that it takes two years to get a cop on the street from the Academy going forward from recruitment through the Academy and then trained to get on the street. So you're not going to see any real change for a couple of years,
0: unfortunately. That's sad. I, I spent, I think three months in Portland um, uh, when I was working. Um, uh, I think it was like 2016. It was, it was beautiful. It's like a beautiful place. Um, and it was like, <laughs> the Apple store I used to walk by, I was like, um, you know, smashed. I think, uh, I think Andy Neo, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name either, but <laughs> the, the, uh, the journalist, he, he was chased into a very nice hotel that, um, that I used to eat at sometimes, uh, for, uh, after work events. Um, so it's kind of like, I don't know, it's in a, in three to four years or, or whatever it's been, it just kind of, what? Well, you know, the way I see
1: it, like in Portland specifically, you know, Antifa saw the George Floyd thing as an opportunity that, okay, this is our time for a la revolution, you know. Yeah. And <laughs> that's what they went out and did. And so unfortunately, extremism, which was the George Floyd thing, breeds extremism, which is the Antifa thing, breeds extremism, which is kind of like what Andy does, right? To to go off. And so now you have all these extreme people on all sides that are doing all these things. And it's freaking out the the majority of Americans, which are pretty moderate people, pretty Mm -hmm. reasonable people. We just want peace, you know? Just want to go about our business, right? And not have to worry about going out on the street and, you know, getting your car Molotov cocktailed or getting your window smashed or getting robbed, you know, the old Asian lady walking down the street getting robbed of her purse by a gang of dudes that come up, right? You don't don't want that to happen. So it's really about, you know, um, for me, I try to walk this, this or thread this needle down the middle. Um, I consider myself a moderate, you know, of uh, of just no more extremists. It's time for just people to kind of come together in the middle and have a blend of, you know, some of the stuff from the left, some of the stuff from the right and just kind of go forward calmly and with a real plan, because right now we really don't have a good plan.
0: Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Just like over the course of the pandemic, just people, it seemed were emboldened to, commit crimes um i think uh an older um asian woman and her son were like pulled down from on the subway in new york city someone was attacked uh, and she ended up dying someone was attacked with like a hatchet randomly at an atm um I, I i don't know i don't know if it's like you know they wear masks so it's like no one's gonna know who i am but like I, <laughs> people just seem emboldened to commit crimes at such a high rate i And what's hard is that, so look, for me, the way I look at it is that the whole George Floyd
1: thing kind of caused a moral panic in this country that was exacerbated by COVID. I really think it was like a moral panic, almost like a fever came across people, right? Defund everything and tear the system down and burn the system down. And it was just totally inflamed by the far, far left, right? And the January 6th stuff didn't help. Trump didn't help on the right. I mean, so again, it's about extremism, right? Um, And... But now, kind of on the on the back end of that, it's like people are coming, coming out of that fever, they're coming out of that moral panic, and they're stopping and they're looking around and they're realizing two things. One, they don't feel safe. And two, this stuff was already in motion before George Floyd. It's well, been in motion since like 2018. Mm-hmm. It's been in motion. When Larry Krasner got elected in Philadelphia, it's when it kind of started. And then you had Kim Fox in Chicago getting elected. Uh, and you had... George Gascon in San Francisco later moving on to LA to be the district attorney there. And then Chase of Bodine getting elected district attorney here. Uh, you got the guy uh, Garza down in Austin, Texas, getting elected down there. They're all progressive DAs that all receive a huge funding source from from George Soros and his and his group, right? That are all talking the same mantra about decriminalization, about about not just reducing incarceration, but to decarcerate, right? You, there's a movement that's gotten bigger on the left called the free them all movement, which is jail abolition. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. That, that's become a thing now where it's like mainstream. That's the thing that's crazy about it is that that's mainstream stuff now that people are talking about on mainstream media. And that's insane that they're talking about that because the bottom line is that progressive policy doesn't work without a modicum of public safety, period. It doesn't work. And we're seeing the results of that now.
0: Yeah, I talked a bit about that with um, with Charles Love on the last podcast. Um, as, as far as just like they, w- they want to abolish the police. Um, Rashida Talib had an Axios interview. And as I mentioned to Charles, like they're not exactly a, a conservative think tank. And and the guy is just like, so you want to introduce this act and it will release sexual predators, like sex traffickers. And she's just like, Yeah. Like, so it, it almost makes me think, and it, it kind of leads me into into the the next question is that there are, this is a bit cynical of me. So I always think that there are, are, are things that the Republicans and the Democrats love to run on and not actually fix so that they can run on it again and then blame the other party. Like I look at immigration as one of those things, right? Like it wasn't fixed in four years. Like if they fixed it, they'd have nothing to fix. So the cynic in me looks at this and I say, there are a lot of people making money off of this system. Like there's, there's all these groups that are saying like, uh, eh, you know, let them do this, let them do this. Uh, let's do safe injection sites, whatever it may be. Um, so do you, th- uh, do you think that there's an argument for that? That like, maybe it's not to fix the problem, um, but to make a profit, or is this really just a legitimate case of, you know, good intentions, um, you know can pave the road to hell yeah
1: it's it's both without without trying to sound too cynical myself I mean you've heard that term of the homeless industrial complex <laughs> I it's, actually it's, haven't heard that one. <laughs> ah, okay it's First not it a term that, that I like to use but it's out there uh, where it's like you know uh, it you know look these nonprofits exist to serve the homeless and so as long as there's a clientele to serve they're gonna continue to, to get contracts and stay in business right yeah and um, But so, so then you do have to look at the deeper issues of the causes of homelessness. So, you know, addiction, mental illness, yes, poverty, yes, you could even make the argument for systemic racism, yes, um, all those things. And so it's smart to invest in, in poor communities and communities of color to try to lift them out of poverty so that they don't, you know, you reduce risk that way. So any, any reasonable business would look at like, we want to mitigate our risk. So that would make sense to invest in those communities. the, the where I kind of come in is that I'm already looking around. I'm standing on the street looking around now at 200,000 homeless people in the state of California. So are we just going to say that their lives are worth less than everybody else's? Or are we going to try to do something to actually get them off the street and improve their quality of life? And what's odd to me is that as I work with service providers and I talk to advocates and other people, it's, uh, you know, the majority view right now is that we just need to house everybody and the problem goes away but in the meantime we have to respect that person's civil liberty so if they want to live in a tent on the street we have to let them and I just don't believe that that's one healthy for that individual and it's not healthy for our community or state or our country to take that approach because what happens with that is that you're seeing now an influx of youth falling into homelessness in this country and most of it is driven by addiction. Now, at least from what I've seen, and people will argue that, that well, no, that's not true. It's driven by the high rents and all that stuff. But you know, there, there's homeless people coming out of Oregon by the thousands and coming out of rural areas in California by the thousands that are gravitating to San Francisco and LA, where rent is cheap from where they're coming from. They're coming down to San Francisco and LA because they, get, they can get the drugs 24 seven. The police don't mess with them. They can get general assistance or general relief money. They can get food stamps uh, and eventually maybe get some type of you know, shelter in place hotel housing or some type of housing for free or for very little money. And they have to do very little and they can just continue to do their dope the whole time. And I think that we need to ask more of those folks. And I think that it's okay for us to have expectations of other human beings. That's how society thrives is that we all have expectations and goals as a community and as individuals. And I think that, you know, that's something that I got back to in recovery that I lost in my addiction is I, I didn't care. I stopped caring when I was using, I only cared about the drugs. I didn't even care if I died. I didn't want to die. But if I overdosed and died, I was like, I don't care. You know, that type of where you just let it go like that. We're seeing far, far too much of that. And then people that are saying, oh, it's okay. It's okay that you let that go. You can keep letting that go. And here's some stuff so that you don't die. But you, you know, when you're ready, you can come to us and we'll start talking to you about trying to get better. Well, I think there's some people that need a little nudge to get better. And that's why I support mandated treatment. Why I think that we need to do more to get people up off the street and into the shelter system as a way to get them into housing because I really do believe that the issue of homelessness uh, and addiction will be our undoing in many of these big cities, unless we take some action now.
0: Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned that like some of the people were, were voluntarily moving to San Francisco. Um, is there, is there, are there any cases where people are, are choosing to be homeless rather than be in a shelter? And why would that be? Well, the,
1: Yes. So the answer is flat out is yes to that. Uh, And there's a couple of reasons to that. So one, okay, so so housing advocates will tell you because the shelter system sucks, right? It's not safe inside a shelter. But look, man, I'm just going to tell you straight up, I've stayed on the street, I've lived on the street, and I've lived in a shelter. No matter what anybody says, a shelter is safer and better than living on the street. Because when I was on the street, if nothing else, I was cold all the time, even when it was warm. I was cold all the time. So the big drawback for shelters for so many people is one, there's rules. Okay. Usually rule number one is no drugs. Rule number two is no weapons. Rule number three, in some cases, is you can only bring a limited amount of belongings. So that, that makes it so that people are like, well, you know, I want to be free. I want to be able to do what I want. And I need my dope. So I'm not going to go to that shelter. And they don't go to the shelter. And that's what happens, Right. Um, So, do we need to make improvements around the shelter system to make it better and more comprehensive? Absolutely. I think a lot of the stuff they're doing in San Diego right now with their bridge shelters, I think you could use that as a model, where it's like every single day they have service providers on site, offering help for housing and treatment and stuff. And I think that that doesn't happen enough in too many shelters here on the West Coast. I'm not sure how it is in New York, but I haven't heard some of the greatest things because it's a big kind of complex issue out there too, because you're sheltering 90,000 people in New York, right? Uh, So that that's a big, big undertaking that probably needs more oversight. But that doesn't mean you should throw out the baby with the bathwater. That just means that you can reform the shelter system and make it better and more effective. Because again, I promise you that the amount of time that it's taking to find someone permanent supportive housing ranges anywhere from one to five years. And so I, I just promise you that if you leave them on the street, to languish for one to five years while they wait for housing, half of those people are going to be dead before that housing is realized because of the drugs that are out there on the street right now, like fentanyl, that are so much more lethal than the drugs that were out there just a few years ago.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the last things that I was just thinking about throughout this, this whole conversation, starting from the beginning, um, was so the first time you go right um, to purchase, you, you make that lie. There's, there's cognitive, uh, I guess, dissonance there between, you know, you want to tell the truth, right. But you don't. And so that even adds to it. And I think uh, this is just me, like, you know, whatever, based on some books um, and psychology books that I'm interested in, but do you think the problem has gotten any worse with just people not living their lives, honestly. So whether it's, you know, young adults and and social media, which has been worsened um, with like remote learning as well. And people are putting up an image of themselves, but that's not who they are. Or even as simple as like, you know, I was, I was talking about this with a friend. It's like, oh yeah, this, this, this person's, you know, no longer taking my insurance for therapy. And they asked me if I still want to do it, but for $200. And I said, yes, because I, I just, I didn't want to say yes, but I did because it was just like, I couldn't say no. And it's like, that made me feel bad because I wasn't being true to like what I actually felt. So do you think there's increased elements of that, whether it be from social media that could also be contributing to the drug addiction problem because young people are not synced, like it's a meditative thing, but they're not synced up with themselves. They don't know who they are. Well
1: yeah okay so let's put it this way so first of all social media can be really it it can be a great tool like i've used twitter as a great tool to amplify my voice and my advocacy and i was kind of discovered on twitter i guess you could say
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, so i owe them a debt of gratitude for giving me a voice and that's where social media can be really really helpful and powerful Uh, at the same time i have two teenage kids and i can tell you right now that tiktok is insidious it's absolutely insidious because of the misinformation and the sexualization and the 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 way it's used to uh, to project how someone should appear or how they appear it sends the wrong 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 message a lot of the time to my kids and I spend a lot of the time talking to my kids about that misinformation that they're seeing and what misinformation I don't mean like what you see on mainstream media misinformation is you know when they talk about Someone's talking about their sexuality or their gender or or uh, drugs or whatnot. That's just that person's opinion, right? And they're entitled to it. Freedom of speech. They're entitled to their opinion. But when it gets a hundred thousand likes or two hundred thousand likes on TikTok, and you see it over and over and over and over again, you start to think that wow, maybe that's more than just that person's opinion, but that's actually fact. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's where that dissonance kind of comes from a little bit. Uh, and you know, as in regards to like being honest and all that one of the things that i that i talk about a lot in my advocacy is that i really believe and i kind of learned this through recovery is that resentment is the root of evil it's not money it's not it's resentment and so i think you're seeing that a lot with a lot of younger people right now especially millennials you hear them complaining about oh i've got still got student debt to pay from college or I went to college and got this degree and I only got a $26 an hour job and I'm renting a room before other people in a house and Elon Musk is worth $200 billion, you know, F him. Right. I hear that all the time. And I'm just like, man, that that's straight up to me, that's resentment. And it's like, you know, is it, are we making it hard, harder for people nowadays because the economy's become more specialized than it was 50 years ago? Yeah. It is. But you also have a better education now than you had 50 years ago. So for me, I'm a Gen Xer guy. And I'm and I'm a big believer in redemption, because I'm a person that had everything I had a lot. I lost it all all the way down to homelessness. And I was able to get it back in recovery at 50 years old. Okay, I'm I'm not some young spry kid fresh out of Columbia University anymore. I'm a 50 year old guy with no college degree. And I was able to get it all back. Because that's how great this place is that we live, we call America, mm-hmm. right? Where it really is the land of opportunity. You just need to create those opportunities. So you need to go out there and do that work and hustle and it can happen. And I did it by not having any resentment. Do things always go my way? No. Do I have a million dollars in the bank? No. But am I grateful for what I have? You bet, you bet I am. Absolutely grateful for what I have because I've actually been on the other side where I've had nothing. And I think that that's kind of what we're missing, um, especially with a lot of the younger folk. There's a lot of this weird kind of sense of entitlement, where they think that they're supposed to get their 40 acres and a mule. Man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I'm just kind of like, nah, I mean, you got to yeah. work hard to get your stuff. And it's I think the that's participation kind of
0: trophies from from T-ball. I don't know, I'm telling
1: yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. I, I have you know, privately, I have some really strong feelings about that. So when I talk to my kids now, it. I talked to them through a lens of recovery and I talked to them about accountability because it's part of it. Personal responsibility is part of it. Does did the system help me when I was, you know, going through addiction and, and eventually into rehab and recovery? Yeah, they did. You know, and that's what's the, the greatest thing about this country is that we are a mixed economy. We're a capitalist country with a ton of social programs, actually more social programs than any other country in the world. And yet we're kind of resentful of the fact that we don't get enough. And I just kind of think that, you know, I'm like, well, so some of that may be true and there might be some corruption and there might be people making too much money like Elon Musk at the same time. It's like, you know what, me and my wife from our generation, it's like, Hey, if you got to get a second job, you got to get a second job. You just got to do, you know? And I think that that's getting lost right now.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it was the book Siddhartha by Herman uh, Herman Hesse. I don't know if that was the title, but he talks about, uh, they talk about resentment. I think the quote was um, like bitterness or resentment is like holding like burning hot coals. The only person you hurt is, is yourself. And I think that was like a really clicking moment for me because personally, I, it was like, I, I feel like we were all like, oh, I, I did this for this person, you know, the least they could do is the same for me. And we, we hold this like tit for tat, um, yeah. generosity, and I think it's just so bad, like everyone that you interact with, with your friends, like they're not all going to live up to your standards all the time. And it's like, if you're measuring your life's interactions based on, I did this, therefore I'm owed this, then you're not doing it out of like, you know, selflessness or whatever, or treating that person because they're your friend and you love them or whatever. You're doing it because you have an expectation of recipro- like reciprocity and that only leads to misery. That leads to resentment. Absolutely
1: agree. Um, And that's, you know, one of the big things in recovery that you learn to let go of is you let them learn go of the resentments that you have towards other people. And then you go and ask those people that you've harmed to kind of forgive you and forgive those resentments that they have against you. And not everyone's going to do that. There's still some people that I hurt in my addiction that are like, F you, man, I, I can't, I can't, you know, and I'm okay with that. But at least I did my part to try. And I certainly don't hold any resentments against that. Mm-hmm. And that, that is one of the most liberating things that, that could have happened to me in recovery. So now, ironically, my life is better now in recovery than it was even before I fell into my addiction. Because I can be honest with myself. I can be honest with my wife. I can be honest with you, with my kids. Uh, and that's, that's the most freedom. This is the most freedom I've ever had in my life now at 51 years old. I'm the most free
0: mentally, physically, spiritually than I've ever been in my entire life. So, so you would say that that was like the one good outcome or many good outcomes of your journey that you had that people, some people, you know, don't, don't suffer and they, and they never get to that conclusion. They live in a, in a, you know, maybe the bubble life and they never reach that.
1: It's yeah. And, you know, and for me, there's other factors like, you know, faith plays a part in my life now where it didn't before. I'm um, I'm not super into organized religion, but I certainly believe in God and I have a ton of faith. And I think that helps me keep that resentment at bay. Um, mm-hmm. And also, it's just it's almost like I, I always equated in my head to my old Nintendo 64 that I had back in the in the 90s, man, where I could hit the reset button. Mm mm-hmm. And that was truly what I got is I got a chance to hit the reset button. I had to go through hell to get there. Um, I did. And I put my family through hell to get there and that's still healing. You know, it takes time to heal, but at least now I can, I'm, I'm going through it and I can be honest with them. And certainly my wife and kids, eyes are, are wide open now, and there's no more secrets or anything like that. And that's a very liberating thing. And that's where the healing and the trust and
0: the love and all that comes, comes back. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so where um just i just want to wrap up with with this um where can people um support you support what you're doing help what local organizations like is there a way that like you know me here in virginia i can look into finding an organization that could solve the problem like what what can we do on a state by state or city by city scale that you're doing in in san francisco okay well there's a few things so one
1: I'm, I'm a founding member and part of the California Peace Coalition here in, in California. And we're a group that's made up of myself, Michael Schellenberger, uh, uh, Soledad Ursua from Southern California, and others that founded this organization that and we have our whole agenda on there where we talk about, you know, uh, uh, shelter first, treatment and then housing earn model. Uh, If you agree with that platform, I encourage you to go visit our website, CaliforniaPeaceCoalition.org, and find out more. You can join our coalition. It's free. We're uh, starting to look at taking the next steps to making it bigger and trying to secure some funding so we can do some more things. Uh, But it's definitely something that's out there. If you want to know more about me and my story, I've had a lot of media exposure. You can find me on my website, www.tomwolf.org. And I'm also on Twitter and my handles at at T wolf recovery. Take a look at my stuff. If, uh, you know, I just try to speak the truth. Uh, I'm not choosing one side or the other. I just speak the truth about what I think will help. Uh, and it's going to end up being a mixture of things in the end anyway. Uh, it's not going to be this drug legalization stuff, uh, safe supply. That's, I can't take people seriously when they really say that, um, because you've never shot dope before. So you don't know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, And it can't all just be like, you know, crack down, have a drug war again, it's going to have to be somewhere in the middle, uh, that's going to be the answer. Because in the end, what we have to do is we have to try to save people before they fall into this trap of addiction, and fall into this trap of homelessness. Because again, like I said earlier, it will be our undoing as a nation unless we figure out a way to turn this around. And I promise you, I promise you that while housing is always an end goal, it's not the only thing that it's going to take, it's going to take a lot more than that uh, to get folks from the street back to being normal, productive members of society.
0: Thank you. I, I think this adds so much to the just default positions that people have, of, of you know, maybe libertarians like legalize all drugs and maybe conservatives, like let's throw the, all these people in jail. Um, I think you, what you're talking about is sh- so important. Um, so I really want to thank you for doing that. Um, and your journey is like one of the most inspiring things I've ever heard. So um, I, really, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It's
1: my pleasure, David. I appreciate you. And anyone else, you know, if you have questions out there, you can reach me through Twitter or whatever. I'll answer them, man. I'm pretty much open to anybody. Um, And unless, you know, you're you're too far out there, man. But uh, I'll try to work with you (laughs) and, and try to move this conversation forward. So thank you again, David.
0: Thanks for joining, Tom.